Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. This episode, as always, was brought to you by 420 Australia, your premier store for 420 lifestyle and apparel, as well as Organic Gardening Solutions, your one-stop shop for organic gardening needs. This episode, we're grateful to be joined by Inspector, who's the head of two companies, as well as a true veteran of the scene. Get set for some counter history, breeding tips, and what you can expect in the future from him. Here we go. Alrighty, a big thank you and welcome to a man who heads not only one, but two breeding companies, Inspector of CSI Humboldt and Pirates of the Emerald Triangle. Thanks so much for coming on. It's good to be here. So the first question I like to ask all breeders, what was your introduction to cannabis? Mm. I'm uh, definitely a second generation, uh, you know, grower, breeder, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, my dad, uh, you know, started way back in the 70s. Uh, uh, he was growing indoors in the late 70s. And, you know, he, he uh, showed me his grow rooms back when I was a little kid. You know, blew smoke in my face when I was a little bit young. Um, you know, I don't remember that. But, you know, passed me the joint when I was 9, 11, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I was definitely uh, watering plants by the time I was 8 years old. Um, for my uncle, uh, not so much my dad on that on that one. But, uh, yeah, I, I started pretty young. Awesome. And so do you remember any of the strains that were – like, you know, when you can first kind of remember things, because obviously you're not going to remember at eight, but, you know, like maybe when you were 14, 15, do you remember what they were growing? Well, um, when I was 18, the very first cutting my dad gave me was Northern Lights that he had got um, from some of his buddies who I think brought it down from the Seattle area. Um, But before that, he had the strain, um, not strain, but he had this cutting that had come from either the Portland or Seattle area back in the early eighties, I'm thinking like somewhere between 82 and 84. And man, he, he swears to this day that it's the best stuff ever. Um, but, uh, I, I remember when I was, I don't know, I was pretty young. Some, sometime between eight and 10, he, uh, opened up his hidden grow room. And I mean, it was, it was the most gorgeous, just 16 cush plants, in this um, six foot by six foot room under a thousand watt metal halide, and I mean, to to this day, you know, I'm I'm looking for something that looks as gorgeous as that, you know, um, definitely something Kush, and that he received as a no name plant um, from you know the Portland Seattle area, but he was told it was bred for eighty degrees and eighty percent humidity. Um, now this is where it gets a little weird, but he always harvested it at 28 days flower. Um, okay. And right. But outdoors, it wasn't even ready until like mid November, you know? Um, but anyways, uh, so, uh, you know, with that said, it was a no name strain. Um, but roughly about 1989, I think. He got this other cutting after he'd lost that first one um, from the Cave Junction area in southern Oregon. And this plant kind of looked halfway between an OG Kush and a Bubba Kush. 
and this the, this cutting was called Uriah. Um, he gave me that plant in the uh, mid '90s, and I held it along with you know cousins and family and friends up until the early 2000s. Um, but uh, you know that's another one of those ones that just got lost to time. But it 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 smelled and tasted exactly how weed is supposed to smell. And anytime something anything comes even close to it, it's like oh that's a keeper. Um, ones that have come closer, like my Bubba S1 Bomb Threat, uh, Irene, um, like a phenotype of purple dog, uh, purple dog bud, which is Urkel times Chem 91. Um, and even some of the like Triangle Kush times uh, Urkels, uh, they, they hit that, you know, just that is what weed is supposed to be. I don't know, just, just from my earliest memories anyway. Yeah, so that's so interesting. You just touched on so many points we'll have to dive into. Um, first one, do you think that that strain, which you know you kind of hold as the benchmark, do you think that was a predecessor to you know the Bubbers and the Urkels and all that, or do you think it was the other way around, like it, it had already been blended together? Oh, it was definitely, I wouldn't say it was a uh, predecessor, but I would say that you know possibly uh, some of the OGs and... Um, Bubbas and stuff, maybe just share certain, um, you know, lineages, you know. Yeah, okay. Pop. Mm-hmm. And so, this might be wrong, but when, if we just go back to how you mentioned, I think you said at 18, you got to see the grow room and you saw, you know, the 16 Kush plants. Was that the defining moment for you where you kind of were like, this is for me? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Huh. Um. I don't know if it was a defining moment, um, but, uh, um, you know, I think I was casual. I, I was honestly, I was casual um, into the growing from the time I was 18 until the time I was about 20, uh, I guess 21. Um, and then I kind of had to make a decision, you know, pursue, you know, <laughs> a real world d- job like I was doing or you know, go full-time growing and well, (laughs) (laughs) you see how it turned out. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And so what was the first strain you bred and what caused you to decide to breed? Well, um, I mean, you know, growing between 94 and the early two thousands, you know, there was definitely, you know, accidental things and we, you know, um, me and friends and family started the seeds and everything um, but then around 2002, uh, I had kind of a, um, uh, a little mutant, uh, activity going on with the purple Urkel. I had this, uh, 12,000 watt room and I had roughly, I think, um, nine, oh, maybe it was a hundred, 108 plants, uh, of Urkel and a couple other things in the room. And one of the purple Urkel's branches, um, basically turned full male okay right yeah uh, i mean you, you got over 100 plants and they're all females except for this one branch and it turned totally male and so i took that uh male branch and i pollinated a bunch of stuff with it i pollinated urkel made urkel s1s uh, made train wreck urkels um and a handful of other urkel hybrids and i grew a me and my cousin and 
you know, some other folks grew a bunch of those seeds out. And I, there was killer stuff in those seeds, you know. And that was about two years before I got on, online. I, I came online in 2004. And then I really started, you know, learning like, you know, oh, wait, <laughs> you can turn them into males, you know. <laughs> so it sounds like things were fairly self-directed. With that being said, though, were there any breeders you were keeping your eye on at that point and thought like, oh, I like the stuff these guys are doing? At, before 2004, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just a Emerald Triangle kid living in the backwoods of Humboldt and Trinity County. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, we didn't have in, I didn't have internet myself until roughly around 2004. Yeah. You know, so I didn't even know what a breeder was. Oh, awesome. You know? Okay. So you, did you far, did you just work with your own stock from year to year? Oh yeah, yeah. All the stuff I inherited from my dad um, and his friends and other friends. Yeah. So awesome. Um, and so, yeah. if we fast forward, I think it was in uh, mid two thousands you decided to start CSI, or was it uh, even after that in like twenty ten maybe? I, I started uh, CSI three years ago. Yeah, because that's what I thought. I was like, was it 2014 I thought I read? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm breeding a lot of the same stuff yep. that I bred over 10 years ago. But, uh, On scale. Yeah, I didn't start the, yeah, I didn't start the company and start retailing until three years ago. Yeah, so I mean, mm-hmm. I guess a question some people might be wondering is, why did it kind of take you so long to get into the commercial game? Um, I mean, honestly, uh, I was, I was just growing my outdoor crops and just <laughs> going on vacations and having fun for a good bit. Um, and, um, also, you know, uh, every time I checked into it, um, I looked into doing the whole seed thing and every time it was just like, uh, you got to sell them overseas in UK or Spain or something. And uh, then even legally getting the money, you know, for them, it, it, it was, yeah, it, it wasn't easy. So I was just like, nah, too risky for me at the time anyway. Yeah, okay. And then I guess mm-hmm. just to have a distinction what was the reason for starting parts of the emerald triangle like why did you want to have the two separate brands for people who aren't aware one's for the feminized line one's for the regular line but did you just kind of get the idea that or the feeling that like they they wouldn't gel together as a brand so to speak oh so to be honest i always wanted to do pirates of the emerald triangle um that was kind of you know the name of you know my buddies and me and you know just what what we did uh um, around Humboldt and Trinity and Mendocino even. Um, but, um, when I started up a seed company, um, like my closest friends and my ex, um, they liked CSI Humboldt over pirates. They didn't think pirates was marketable. I was like, okay, I'll just go with pirates or uh, CSI. Sorry. Um, and, uh, then, you know, as time went on, I was like, well, I still kind of want to, you know, do uh, my original, you know, idea of pirates. So I just kind of segregated them. Yeah, okay. You know. And so mm-hmm. if we just kind of jump back to a while ago, you mentioned the bomb threat bubba. 
This is interesting, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Archive also uses this one as a mother. How long has that one been around for? I actually was under the impression, I'm probably wrong, but I thought Fletcher popped that one, but uh, it was you. Oh, yeah. Um, I sprouted, it wasn't even a large seed pop. I sprouted 20 of my uh, Bubba Kush S1 seeds back in 2006. Um, the, the, basically, from the same breeding that Obama Kush came from, um, that my, my buddy popularized up in uh, Portland, Seattle, and everything. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I popped 20 seeds and it was my, it, it, weirdly enough, it was my favorite commercial plant of the bunch. Um, it had kind of like a lemon lime, you know, type of thing. My favorite plant out of that bunch was, uh, this lemon heads candy, uh, Bubba S1, the number 12, but nobody could grow it after the first seed run. I mean, it was just a horrible plant to grow. And so everybody who I gave it to lost it real quick. Um, the bomb threat though, uh, it ended up sticking around and people liked it and I didn't even keep it for a long time. So I probably didn't have it for two or three years. And then I realized everybody I'd given it to still had it and absolutely loved it. And then I got it back and, uh, you know, um, but yeah, um, the reason a lot of people think archive, um, sprouted it is because, uh, I entered, um, I entered, uh, bomb threat, bomb threat flowers that I grew, um, in, I think 2013 through archive seed bank, um, through, uh, you know, um, Fletcher's company. And then, uh, it won third place at the high time show that it was entered at. So, you know, even though I grew it, you know, he got kind of the credit for it. Oh, bummer. Well, I mean, oh, no, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries there. Awesome. So, I mean, yeah. in terms of the bubba, if we want to dive a little deeper into it, a question I always get asked is like comparing the bubba to the Oregon Afghani. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but a lot of people like hint that maybe bubba comes from Oregon Afghani, but I always got the impression it was the other way around. Do you have any kind of opinions on that one? I, I would probably agree with you. Um, I honestly think um, more than likely um, the Oregon Afghani comes from Bubba. But then on, on the flip side, um, you know, uh, the Oregon Afi could be its own thing because there are a lot of plants around the Emerald Triangle um, that have that similar, um, you know, look and uh, – um, it's just old Afghani type plant, you know? Yeah. And so do you know much about the history of Bubba before, you know, Matt or, you know, if that is the truth, you kind of going on at this point? I, I, I tend to believe the story as far as, uh, Matt and Josh, Josh D. Uh, um, and yeah. And so if we use that as a bit of a segue, I got told mm-hmm. the other day that, um, Someone was like, oh, the OG that Josh brought to the scene was Ghost OG. And I was like, no, I thought that was Triangle. And they said, oh, yeah, they're the same thing. And I was like, I thought they were different. What do you think on that? Well, it, it's a little bit com- complicated, but the way I read it is um, there, um, what, what, uh, what Matt brought from Florida is a bag seed, um, I would assume most likely from Triangle Kush. So imagine a Triangle Kush S1 
that they brought, you know, over uh, to the Southern California area. And then uh, the ghost is basically just the cut that, you know, Josh or them, you know, their people sold uh, to Oregon Kid who sold to Ghost, which it's weird calling it Ghost, even though it's really just the Josh D cut, you know, or the Matt Burger, Matt Burger's cut. Uh, okay. You know? So, yeah. so it's not the S one, you don't think, or it may be. Um, as far as like a S one of TK yeah, or yeah, of TK, I, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I would imagine it's an S one because that's the way the story, uh, you know, uh, plays out as far as Matt Berger saying, you know, they got some seeds in a bag, you know, and I've met a lot of people who, you know, grew or bought um, Triangle Kush back in Florida around the whole Orlando area um, and the greater Florida area, um, you know, back in the mid early nineties. Yeah. So it definitely was, was there. Yeah. And I mean, that seems to make sense to me because the uh, the the triangle to me it doesn't have really any hints of lemon in it, um, and and mm-hmm. the ghost is quite similar in my opinion. But how did we make that jump from there to the you know like the real heavy lemon pine OGs we have now? Do you, like commonly I hear the idea that it was S ones led to that, and I can totally believe that. But I the one thing I struggle to grasp is where did all that lemon come from? I I, I just struggle to believe it was recessively in the TK, as so I think maybe some kind of lemon mail came into the story for example maybe to make like sfv or something along those lines right well um kind of take it like this i mean when i s1 bubba i mean you know you you don't hear anybody saying bubba tastes like lemon lime or you know lemon heads candy and yet Mm. just out of a simple 20 pack you know i pulled both those types out other um my buddy grew out 35 just a couple years ago of my fresh batch and he found, you know, a lemon-lime one. Um, and he also found one that was just super fruity, just like, you know, berries and such, you know. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff hiding in S1s, you know, or even S2s that, you know, come out, you know, when you grow out, you know, the seeds. Okay. It's not it, – S1s are never replicas of the mother cut, you know. So just as a general question – I was thinking about it last night and I was kind of struggling to find a clear example of where there was an S1 that was better than the original plant. And mm-hmm. I was wondering, do you can you think of anything that jumps to mind where it's an S1 that's clearly better than the parent? Uh, honestly, uh, most people who uh, smoke bomb threat think it's better than its parent. Um, I've, I've got Mendocino Purples uh, S1s that are definitely better than the parent. Um, I've, I've grown Urkel S1s that are better than the Urkel. Um, so most most lines so far that I've done, you know, definitely have individuals that are easily better than, you know, the parent tissue. Okay. So, And do you think yeah. that that comes down to the quality of the breeding? Like, does good feminizing practices affect the end quality of the seed? You know, um, I was actually um, just listening to um, your your uh, pot, podcast with uh, Matt Riot, yeah, uh, on some feminized stuff, and I I'm I'm one of the firm believers that I do not think you can change the genetics, no matter how the feminized seeds are created. I think if it's accidental, I think if it's you know, 
on purpose, you know, STS colloidal silver, you know, gibralic acid, I think you're always going to create the same exact seeds no matter what. Um, you, you really can't change base DNA genetics, I don't think. But, okay, you know, I look. I live in the backwoods, so, you know, <laughs> what do I know? And so, like, I mean, with that being said, do you think then that we should try to avoid the stigma around, like, hermeseed, so to speak? Because something I've always noticed is people will call, like, let's say bag seed, you know, so that's, like, unintentional f- male flowers on a female causing seeds. So, people will call bag seeds S1, but then they'll also call, like, a properly made feminized seed in S1. And I always thought... You know, should should we call them the same or call them different? I guess in your mind, they're the same thing, right? There's just no difference. The the only thing with bag seeds that um, throws a, a shadow of doubt is there. There's always two two or three opportun you know options really. Um, they could be S ones. They could be um, feminized hybrids. You know, one plant hermed onto another, um, or they could be random stray pollen from a male plant. So you really don't know with bagseed 100% unless you really know your plants well, you know, and you're responsible for those bag seeds. If it's from some random bag, you never know. Yeah. You know? Okay. So are there any clones that you've worked with that you would consider to be like really highly recessive and maybe not ideal for feminizing in that they might make some all right S1s and the quality of the S1s is really good? But as soon as you put that pollen onto another plant, it just the results aren't as good. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, you know, uh, um, I don't know if I've even ever thought about that before. Um, huh. uh, a, a lot of times, I don't even point people to S ones particularly because uh, most S ones, in my experience. Um, you know, tend to have like 40 or 50% like recessive genetics themselves. And with the S1s, you end up with uh, generally close to 50% of the population just being weak and inbred. Um, you, you definitely get some strong, you know, good quality plants, but it's all, with just pure S1s, it's almost like a throwaway. So um, a lot of times feminized hybrids work better with an outcross than they do with an S1. So I don't, I don't know that's not exactly the question, but, um, you know. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And so I kind of like the follow-up to that is a lot of people will often kind of say that the plant that's being turned into the donor, the pollen donor, will tend to be more <laughs> dominant in the cross as a rule of thumb. Do you find that's the case or it's still just down to the individual plant and if it's like a dominant plant in crosses and it kind of regardless of if it's the donor pollen? It definitely varies, um, and this is something um, I definitely want to work on more myself um, because I've I've done a lot of uh, um, opposite crosses, like where you take, say, you reverse Bubba Kush and you pollinate uh, Purple Urkel, and other times you reverse Urkel and you pollinate Bubba Kush. You know, um, a, a lot of the breeders, like, say, Sam Skunkman, um, you know, He'll he'll say you know um, they come out the same, but or he'll avoid the question. <clears throat> um, but honestly, I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I really want to run out like large hundred or thousand lots of these seeds. 
of these reverse crosses because even on the small level I've done them, you know, it almost seems like they produce different results depending on the pollen donor. Um, so uh, it's it's definitely variable, but um, I don't know if I can fully answer that question for sure. Yeah, no, I definitely would have to disagree with Sam on that one um, for a few reasons. I mean, I'm pretty sure DJ short throughout the idea that he said, I always prefer the more sativa of the two plants in my cross to be the female. So straight away, like he's agreeing that there is something to that idea and it's not just irrelevant. And then more so, I was thinking about that myself because I've kind of toyed with that idea myself with just some kind of pollen. And I found that I definitely got better results doing it one way than the other. So then it got me thinking, Mm -hmm. well, was it the case that, you know, the way that worked well was the way that's better? Or was it just the case that when I did it and I got good results, I just did a better male selection that run and so the results came out better right there's a lot of variables so it's it's i, th- I think there definitely needs to be some more scientific uh you know <laughs> regimens uh to you know say yay or nay on that question for sure okay and so i mean if we just kind of jump to a bit of a different topic for a moment we were talking about the urkel before for, for some people, at least, the Urkel is like the oldest cut they have in their library. When did you get the Urkel? And as a follow-up, what's the oldest cut you've got in your library? Um, I got Urkel around 2001. Um, and um, pretty much the whole family and everybody everybody I, I, I knew had this Urkel, um, you know, around that time. It was the number one most popular strain in uh, California and beyond, you know, um, for a good five, five plus years there. Um, oldest cut, I still um, have um, the Humboldt Snow or the Snow. Um, I got that back in, I think, 99. Um, I had a bunch of older cuts, but I lost all of those in 2002. So, uh, um I think the snow is the oldest one I still have. Um, so I think I read a post from you. Um, I mean, you've already made the snow hybrids and they're about to be released soon. But I remember like when you very first started doing it, you were like, oh, yeah, I'm making these hybrids. I don't think people will be so interested in them, but I'm just doing them for me mostly. Why do you think people right. would be interested in the snow? Like, Do you think it's like not really desirable compared to today's stuff? or it, it, It's just not fancy. You know, it ain't no purple punch. It ain't no, you know, gelato or, you know, wedding cake, you know. It, it's it's not all these designer, you know, hyped up things. It's just old school, you know. It's stuff that you take one to hit too many back in the late 90s and you're puking in the gutter. <laughs> so how, how would you describe it for someone like me, for example, who's never had pure snow? Like, is it kind of like a sweet strain? Looks pretty frosty on your Instagram. Yeah, it, it's 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 a frosty. I just describe it as like a frosty hash plant, a little bit piney, um, skunky, um, hashy, um, just kind of old school flavors. Um, and um, um, originally, uh, the snow actually, uh, um, I guess, came from uh, the Eugene area. You know, um, I've even heard it um, potentially being related. Uh, possibly like a sister cut to Trinity. Um, and then, uh, you know, um, both of those possibly related to four way, but that's just, you know, things that I'd like to iron out with some folks and actually see, uh, if any of that pans out. 
But uh, Trinity is an interesting one. I don't think we've ever really spoken about it on the show. But the thing which caught my eye is, besides you know, like the ambiguity of the genetics and the name or whatever, um, it a lot of people comment like it's gone downhill over the years. It's it, sometimes it throws nanas apparently. Um, and some people say the flavor is not quite what it used to be. I'm always interested in cuts that have degraded versus cuts that haven't. Um, w- <laughs> would you consider it to be one that's really degraded and would you still work with it, I guess? You know, I've never uh, flowered out the pure Trinity. Um, I've recently been given a cut of Trinity that may or may not be um, the original. Um, I-, I seem to... You know, it, it definitely looks like what I know of as the original. So, um, it, it, it's definitely one that has potential for you know S ones. But then again, uh, if it if it actually came from four way, then four way might actually be a a better bet to um, you know dig into and see what's in the genetics. Yeah, interesting, interesting. And so, if we just jump back to the Urkel we were talking about in a moment. Do you have any ideas about what the genetics may be? We've heard Mad Farmer speculate that on the father's side, it was maybe a predecessor to Northern Lights 2. Do you know anything along those lines or anything in general? You know, I've always heard since early on after I got it. There was a couple things um, I was told when I got it. Um, one, it came off of Bell Springs Road. And Bell Springs Road is basically a back road between Humboldt, Humboldt County, Garberville, um, and Mendocino County. Um, and, you know, uh, I honestly, uh, I, I want to dig up Tom Hill one of these days, if he's still alive. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he is, but, you know. Um, because um, a lot of his genetics came from this cat named The Chemist, and I kind of almost wonder if uh, this chemist isn't responsible for Urkel or isn't, you know, once or twice removed from somebody who's responsible for this Urkel. Um, because people, uh, people, um, said that it was a Pakistani times skunk number one. And that was kind of like, you know, almost common knowledge, you know, around Southern humble, you know, so could be true. Mm, Never know. But I'm, I'm, I'm running out a bunch of pine tar cushions right now, and there are definitely a lot of plants that resemble Urkel S1s. So, Yeah, awesome. What can you tell us about Tom Hill in general? I mean, I don't know if you're aware, Mean Gene last episode said that the chemist is Tom Hill's dad. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't, so I thought that's cool. And the other cool thing to that is, is um, anyway... What can you tell us about the Pine Tar Project? There's some photos on your Instagram. It's a hard one to come across. I had a few packs of X18 and they didn't germ, so I was mighty impressed when you got, I think you said 230 out of 300 or so. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, what's the goal with the Pine Tar and what can you tell us about Tom Hill in general? Well, um, j- just just to recap on the, the Pine Tar Kush. Um, so, uh, last time I actually saw Tom in person uh, was a couple of years ago at the Golden Tarp Awards. And, um, he, he promised me, he, he had a thousand seeds left of the pine tar kush. And I told him, you know, the work I was doing at the time. And he's like, Oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my last thousand and you can do a big open pollination. Um, and since then everybody I know and 
you know, who knows Tom, including myself, he's pretty much dropped off, you know, the, the weed growing planet. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I was, I was left to basically round up just a bunch of pine tar cush seeds from, you know, the, the community essentially, you know, yep. uh, but, uh, wait, did I lose the, the question? No, no, no. And then, um, what do you hope to ultimately get out of the PTK project? I, I just think it's a quality, pure, pure, uh, um, indica line. So, I mean, the thing I've been doing for the last few years, at least, is just preserving and reproducing all these, you know, just pure lines. Uh, I've done, you know, Colombians, uh, Burmese, um, the Pakistani trawls, um, you know, the pine tars now, um, a handful of others. Um, so um, it, it's for future work. Okay. And how do you think it compares to his other strains? We've had a few people say that, um, they've heard the pine tar pretty much blows most of his other work out of the water, especially the deep chunk, which is interesting because it, you know, it's got such a cult following because it looks so cool and it's pretty interesting. But at the same time, it's pretty bland. Right, um, deep chunk by itself is definitely boring. Um, I think there's good qualities to deep chunk. I, I reproduced that one as well um, from some of his old 2003 stock. Um, but uh, the the pine tar, yeah, definitely is one of the the ones out of his lines that uh, you know has definitely uh, been one I want to I've been wanting to preserve uh, for a long time. Um, the X eighteen as well, um, I've grown a, a little bit of that out a couple times, and every time it produces some really nice, just you know, land race style plants. So nothing that you know people really want these days, you know. Yeah. But yeah. stuff to build on. Okay. And so, yeah. I remember watching your interview with uh, Kevin Jodry, and you mentioned that the OG KB Fino comes out in Urkel S1s about 10% of the time. So, with that yeah. being said, do you feel like there's a bit of Urkel in OG KB or just a common lineage between the two? Oh, I, I, I definitely think that um, some part of... If, if they're telling the truth... Um, and everything, the Cookies family, I, I definitely think there's some Urkel in the Durban F1, you know. Okay. And so, so, do you think that that is the case? Like, do you think they really know what they've got? I get the feeling they probably don't. Mm, they, yeah, that's a tough one. They might, um, or they might not, you know. Um I've I've got buddies down in Mendo who've known them since they were kids, and <laughs> most of those guys think they don't know exactly one hundred percent what they have or what they're working with. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, maybe a more underlying question: Do you think, even though they may not know what it is, do you think they were the ones where, like, operating the room where the seed was originally conceived, or the alternative story is they got bags of it and then they were just the ones who popped it? Yeah. I think they're probably responsible for it, um, but that, that, that's more, uh, more you know, folks like me and Jane, you know, down in Mendo would definitely know more about that than, you know, you know where, where I was up in Humboldt and, okay. you know, the back of the Trinity. Well, the other little mm -hmm. popular idea at the moment is that 
some common ancestor of the cookies or possibly even just the straight parent in it that's an S1 is the cherry pie kush. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. Do you have any opinions mm-hmm. on that one, whether it is possibly in the, you know, the bloodline? Um, you know, it, it, it could be. And, and cherry pie is supposed to be a granddaddy purple times Durban F1 or something to that effect, right? Yeah, I think the one that is kind of getting touted at the moment is actually apparently different to just straight cherry pie and they call it cherry pie kush, even though I'm sure cherry pie gets called cherry pie kush by accident. But apparently it's different. And the story that's going around, especially from the Gage Green crew, is that, um, you know, Girl Scout cookies is just an S1 from this plant. And apparently if you grow this plant, it's a little bit self-evident. Hmm. Um interesting um well yeah i i know the plant um it was the one uh uh tim blake was growing yeah, uh, yeah. and the uh the pfa crew yeah 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 um and then uh, of course uh alan uh i forget his yeah, name atkinson or whatever atkinson yeah yeah i mean uh i've, I've heard his story um yeah i don't know yeah um well i mean <laughs> i i Go, go for Sorry, it. I was going to say, with that being said, just to go back to OGKB, do you think OGKB is like an S1 of Girl Scout cookies or do you think it's maybe one of the original seeds from the original stock, which is kind of the other story that goes around? You, you know, I've always thought, you know, um, it was just um, S1 or whatever, whatever, but um, um, I met this fellow uh, a few weeks back up in Portland. Um, his... his uh, he went by the handle OG Kush Breath. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And he, he he's the guy that, you know, um, he's the source of the OG KB clone. Um, and he swears up and down it's the original Thin Mint. So, mm. I don't know. Yeah. I've, I've read a story from him saying, and he swears he popped the seed. And so, I was yeah. like, oh, okay. But yeah, I think that's maybe where that, that second story I mentioned got traction. Because if he did pop the seed, yeah. well then... Yeah, who knows? Anyway, um, just maybe a last little question on the cookies thing. Will you uh-huh. ever consider doing like a cookies S1 project? And the reason why I bring this up is because, um, you know, you've you got to give it credit. It's been around long enough that you kind of have to consider it like a really elite clone. Like it stood the test of time. It's still around. Right. So, you know, will you ever do that? Okay, so th- this is a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> okay, so... Um, I kind of took a break from the internet for um, about three years from 2008 to 2011. And I stayed out of, you know, any, you know, weed this, that, or the other. I enjoyed a little break. And then when I came back, it was like cookies, 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 cookies. I'm like, what the fuck is this cookies, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I'm like, what happened, you know? I mean, everything was cool when I left. Um, so I come back and there was all this hype and I was just like, oh, hell with this, you know, this stuff, you know, um, I, I, I got a cut of the forum, the, the forum cut of cookies, grew it out and, you know, it was nothing special. <laughs> then I grew it out a couple more times and probably the third time I grew it out, it was just like, damn, this is some really freaking good weed. And honestly, it, it's taken me a few years to, you know, wrap my head around it but i'm like if there wasn't all this hype around the cookies 
I would honestly think it is some of the best weed I've ever, you know, grown and smoked. So um, I kind of wrapped my head around that just this last summer, and I was like, you know what? I don't, <laughs> I don't care who I'm doing it for. I'm doing it for me. So actually, right now, I, I, I reversed the, the forum cut, which is actually, you know, my favorite one that I've grown so far. And I'm just making me a bunch of, you know, forum S1s and then hybrids just to, you know, because every single Girl Scout cookie hybrid I grow has really good stuff in it. Even though, you know, you definitely have to weed through, you know, all the unstable ones out of the bunch. But, you know, once you're through that, there's really good quality plants out of all the ones I've grown. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, fantastic. And so, what type of female would you consider ideal um, to be like the receiving end of the pollen from the, the Girl Scout? You know, what, what's a type of plant that you think pairs well with the Girl Scout? You, you know, right now I don't know because I haven't, uh, I, I probably have, uh, I don't know, four or five at most. Um, I think something that is kind of similar um, to like the stature of, of cookies, like an OG Kush or a, um, kind of a, like a, the old family purples, the Urkel OGs that I have, um, some of those I think would blend really well and kind of keep that structure up. And that popcorn look, because my favorite plants are always popcorn plants, uh, with just you know dank nuggets, you know, along the stems. I don't know. Yeah, that's how the old, that's how the old ones I grew up with were. So, how do you think they got so small? Sounds like a bit of a weird question, like the nuggets. But like, I look at all the predecessors that are thrown out there as possible Girl Scout cookie parents, and you know, for example. Uh, OG Kush, you know, similar structure, small little golf bully nugs, but it's like they took a markedly step smaller in the Girl Scout cookies. And it's like, I don't know, it just seems like an odd trait, like it's probably just recessive genetics or whatever, but yeah, it just seems odd that they got so small but so potent. Like, do you have any ideas about how that happened? Like just selection or lottery ticket combination type thing or? Yeah, it it could just be a, um, well, then again, you know, who's to say because you know, the forum cut, which is probably the most widespread one, has those small little popcorn nuggets. But the um, the OGKB and the Thin Mints, I don't think whether they're the same or different, they're not as small as, as the forum, right? Yeah. So just some form of, you know, recessive recombinations, you know, especially if you think maybe it's a, you know, an S1 or possibly S2, whatever. And so that's so. an interesting point you just mentioned, S2. We've seen more breeders come out using S1s as mothers, but we've even actually started to see people use S2s as mothers. Do you feel mm-hmm. there is a risk in doing this, or do you feel like maybe if you choose to do it, you just need to test the progeny harder as a breeder if you're doing so? Like, what would be your recommendations as a buyer? Would you be like, buyer beware, or no? Go for it. <laughs> you, you definitely uh, get... Um, more uniform results using S2s or breeding with S1s, you know. Um, so I, I, I think the further you get, like S1, S2, maybe even S3, um, you're going to get uh, tighter and tighter uh, um, phenotypic, you know, variation. Um, I've, I've seen it myself when, you know, um, I, I do a, a feminized hybrid, 
um, with just the mother plant. And then I do a feminized hybrid with the S1, uh, S1 selection. The phenotypes are a lot tighter. And, you know, some of these guys like good old Sam, uh, skunk man, you know, they're, they're not going to be advertising all over the place, but they've said it, you know, I mean, those guys are, you know, breeding stuff to S1, S2, S3, S4, S5. And that's how they're, you know, isolating exactly what they want out of the plants, you know, but then you got all these people who are running around being like, oh, feminize is bad. And it's like, why is the, you know, guys who have, you know, um, the, the broadest, you know, experience in the game, you know, being like, this is the way you do it, you know? Yeah. Okay. And so I guess with that in mind, do you agree mm-hmm. with the idea that there is an increased risk of hermaphrodites with feminized seeds? Um, you know, that that's a tough one because pretty much every single uh, um, land race I've ever run it has plenty of hermaphrodites. I mean, even Tom Hill's Pine Tars, X-18s, Deep Chunk, you bring those inside, all of those have you know, a good percentage of hermaphrodites. Um, you run out any regular seed, OG, Kush, Chemdog, this, that, or the other, you give them a certain level of stress, they all have hermaphrodites, you know? Um, the the feminine seeds definitely have their share. Um, it definitely gets worse if you take uh, extreme hermaphrodite, like, say, something that breeds strong hermaphrodites like Girl Scout cookies, and cross it to another extreme hermaphrodite, you know? Like Girl Scout cookies times sour diesel. I mean, I see companies every day selling seeds just like this. I'm like, how are they not getting 110% hermaphrodites, you know? But people still, under certain circumstances, are getting, you know, great plants that don't have the herm problems out of them, even off the worst hybrids. Yeah, okay. You know? And so So, maybe this one you may not know the answer to because it's kind of a bit abstract, I guess. But in terms of the Girl Scout cookies, where do you attribute the hermaphrodite traits back to? Do you think it comes from like a possible OG side and then it's just been kind of aggravated in this situation? There's definitely a a strong hermaphroditic trait in OG Kush. And it's not even so much that the OG Kush itself, um, because I've run tons of different OG Kush clones and I've never really ever had herm problems out of them but when you breed it you always get you know anywhere from 10 to 20 percent and if you have a you know a little tent with you know a bunch of light leaks or hit them with you know extreme you know doses of fertility you know you're going to end up with even more than that you know yeah so the og is definitely a one proponent but girl scout seems like it might have a couple couple things in it um you you know how uh, um, the, the general recipe Durban F1 times Florida OG is supposed to be Girl Scout cookies? Yeah. Well, um, I, bought a, I bought a little sack of uh, Durban F1 off of Cookie Monster down in L.A. earlier this year. And, man, that he pulled it out of this bag, and I ain't seen more bananas in a bag <laughs> in a long time. It was like, whoa. That's one Herm strain. So, <laughs> I don't know. You know, It's like there's so many people who are like apart or peripherally apart of Cookie Fam that 
Mm-hmm. For me, it's almost hard to know who's what, you know, like <clears throat> there's there's right. the people who you would consider the main, you know, like Burner and his crew, but now it's almost like, no, 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 they're not Cookie Fam. It's like, it's the Scissorp guy and, you know, these other Cookie Monster and all that. And so, to me, it's almost just like, man, it, it's almost like just so muddy. It's hard, it's yeah. hard to know what's up, you know? Right. I, I think the core fam is like uh, S-Flux, uh, Capacitor, Jigga. And then, um, and then Burner, of course, as Hype Man. Yeah, um, and then like, what happened to Pie Guy, for example? Is he still there? I don't even yeah, know. And, like, and in the original stories, they were saying like he's the one who knows the genetics. Blah blah blah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, tr- I I've I've tried to stay out of it for so long, but you know, <laughs> I'm dragging you. In. I do. Uh, no, I, I have curiosities myself, you know, so. You know, I've I've got some experiments I'd like to be running. Hopefully, this winter, if things work out. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing I always thought to myself is, why doesn't someone like just fem, just regular Durban to OG Kush, and see what comes out? Because you know that that must give you some hints, right? Because if the F one part of that Durban F one is really a mystery, well, maybe doing that cross would maybe help elude, or I don't know. I, I mean, I've 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 uh, I've run this Durban for a long time, and man, I have a hard time. Maybe I just need to run the OGKB and the Thin Mints, um, but I have a hard time seeing a lot of Durban at all in Girl Scout cookies. I mean, Durban is extremely high in terpenaline, and that's the smell you get out of Trainwreck, Jack Herrera, you know, that kind of stuff. So. That doesn't seem to be a, a strong component to Girl Scouts in general. Yeah. This this may be going to be a bit of an unpopular opinion, but I always found Girl Scout cookies to have like a certain licorice aniseed component to it. But then when I got to smell the Colorado Durban, um, uh-huh. I was like, this doesn't smell like aniseed at all to me. It just smells like really sweet and like that's it. Like you're not getting any licorice, not getting nothing. And if I just smelt that, I would have been like, I don't think this is a part of cookies. Right, right, and and th- that's the thing too. Uh, the most popular clone of Durban going around the U.S. is that one in Colorado. It it's actually everywhere. It's kind of weird. Um, I've gotten multiple cuts of it, and it's, it's the same thing. You know, it's uh, it's just high terpenaline. I mean, it's it's extremely high. It tests it like f- between four and five percent terpenaline. Yeah, wow. And just that one terpene. Yeah. Yeah, and most strains don't even test at one percent for all their terpenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's certainly so. pungent. Um, it's really, really pungent. Right. So, a question I was interested in, probably should have asked it back at the Urkel part. I might even cut it back in there. Um, for me, I was really surprised by how thin-leafed Urkel is, and I guess just in my mind, I was expecting it to be a bit more akin to like a barber because of you know, like the real indica medicinal side of it. Do you think that this indicates there's a lot to be said about thin leaf indicas and, you know, like where are they now type thing? Well, um, I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, so uh, back to the, you know, the, the pine tar cushions that I'm running out right now. Um, pack and, and even to go into like the Pakistani chitrals, um that I work with and work with, you know, uh, via can of Biogen. Um, these are all, you know, Pakistani indicas, you know, whether it's pine tar, you know, the chitrals or, 
um, X18s or whatever, but all of these are more thin-leafed indicas. They're not that broad, you know, uh, hash plant leaf or that deep chunk leaf. Um, um, I've, I've got a, a, a male uh, um, pine tar right now that looks almost identical to Urkel. And then I've got another male um, that smells just like Urkel. So I'm like, ooh, <laughs> you know, future projects. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, interesting. But, and then would you ever consider maybe trying to like recreate like Urkel, for example, in the sense of using a few strains which you saw different characteristics in it, but not ones that you thought were specifically a part of the Urkel makeup? Almost like a Redux um, type thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, um, hearsay has it that, you know, Urkel is a, a Pakistani times a skunk number one, right? Yep. So, I mean, I've had UKT since 05, you know? Um, I'm like, well, why don't I just take one of these select, you know, pine tar cushions and cross it to UKTs and see what pops out, you know? Yeah, that'd be really cool. Right? You know, no. I, and, and that, that falls exactly into a lot of stuff that, you know, re- really kind of entertains me is I, I like to recreate things and see, you know, how things combine and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah awesome. And so last kind of question on the Urkel, what is the difference between the Urkel and the Mendo Perps? They're extremely different. Um, the Mendo Perps um, comes from my buddy down there in Mendocino. Um, he sprouted the seed back in 1998. Um, you, I'm, I'm sure you know his handle uh, on IG, not so dog. Yeah. Uh, but uh, um, it came from he got the seed from this old man out of uh, Covalo, sprouted the seed, and you know it is a very unique plant to me. Um, it it looks like kind of a um, an Afghani type. It has that kind of Afghani broadleafed. Uh, um, look to it. Um, I've S1'd it. I grew S1s, you know, back in 04. Um, grew a bunch of S1s a few years ago of it. Um, and it doesn't seem like there's really any sativa in it um, as far as the S1s go. Um, but there's just a lot of unique terpenes, just, you know, stuff I haven't seen in any other plants, you know. Um, yeah, okay. But, uh, and so, it, it's, sorry, go on. Well, it's, it's very different than Urkel. Urkel tends to be a, a, a cold dependent, like it needs a little cold, a little bit of cold temperatures um, to purple up. Whereas the Mendo purple, um, it has more of a natural purple to it. But the S ones of the Mendo purple have an extreme, uh, a percentage of those have an extreme natural purple, almost a black, just from the start of flower. Ah, fantastic. I think I've actually spotted a few photos of that one on your feed. Um, Yeah, Mm -hmm. really dark. If we're just going to jump topics for a moment, I wanted to ask you about all the pure cushions going around right now. It seems like they've gained a bit of traction recently. There's there's like the Sugar Cut, um, the LA Pure, the Topanga. I don't know how to say it. It's a suburb in Cali, I'm sure. Um, Yeah, Yeah, there's all those different ones. I've heard from a few people, oh, they're similar slash the same. What's the differences? And and what is it, when they say pure kush, like to me, it brings like TK to mind, you know, like like no lemon, just kush. Is that kind of what it's like or not really? You you know, I'm I'm with you on the whole pure kush thing. Um, 
my my buddy uh, got this uh, Pure Kush cologne back in 2005 and gave it to me. Um, it came from Orange County. Um, some big warehouse grower had paid $5,000 for the cut, and I've had it ever since. And it's just an OG Kush. It's it's a good OG Kush. It's more of an earthy, hashy OG Kush. No lemon or, you know, all that. No pine salt. Um, but a lot of people really like it. Um, but it's no relation to the Bubba S type plant that Suge Knight, you know, has as, or had as pure Kush. Um, and then on top of that, there's a bunch of clubs out of like Malibu or wherever, um, Topanga, Topanga Canyon, pure Kushes that aren't even the same cut as the one I got back in 05. And these didn't even pop up for another, what, five plus years after that. Hmm. So, I mean, it's it's one of those things where, you know, you could try to figure it out or you could just, yeah. <laughs> just leave <Yeah>. it be. <laughs> right. Just to, just to quickly clarify something, do you think, or like, is it the case that the uh, the Suge cut is actually from Suge Knight? I just thought it was just, like, named after him or whatever. Um, okay, so back in 04, 05, um, there was this um, there was this guy um, on Canvas World. I'm not sure if he was on Overgrow, but he was he was heavy on Canvas World, and he 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 got this cut um, that was originally labeled PK, um, and he actually called it uh, maybe it didn't even have a label because he actually called it Bubba Kush at first. But then he found out it was a PK, and he was calling it uh, um, Purple Kush. And then he was like, no, it's not Purple Kush. Then he relabeled it Piss Kush. And then he was like, no, that's not it. And he was like, okay, it's Pure Kush. They told me now. It's Pure Kush. And he did some breeding with it and blah, 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 and sold seeds on a Cannabis World you know, via uh, Heaven's Stairway. Um, yep. So, so it was just a dude who used the handle Suge Knight. Oh, okay. Nothing to do with, you know. Yeah, I, fi- I figured <laughs> that he was too caught up with his shit with Biggie to be breathing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there's still some cats, I think, who talk with him. You know, oh, okay. cats, like a, cats like Rude Boy and, uh, you know, Grow Hard. Um, but uh, I'm not sure if he's too much in the game anymore, though. Yeah, it's interesting how so many people have almost ducked out when it would seem like it's the right time to put your head up. Right, right. Yeah. So, a bit of a, maybe a controversial question. What's the deal with Purple Punch winning at Chalice, which is a little bit of a while ago, admittedly, but everyone I've spoken to says that strain has no potency, it looks great, sure, but shithouse. And then, it like, it's winning, like, Jungle Boys are winning cups with it and stuff, like... How does does that work for you? Do you do you rate it better than what other people do? Like, okay, so all purple punches is, is um, you know, you you forget some of the names on them, right? Um, all it is is OG Kush times Urkel, essentially. Yeah, right. You know, um, and I I just grew out you know well over a hundred OG Kush times Urkels. You know that all the OGs had different names, but all the Urkel was just the same. Um, I had purple punch phenotypes in there and what those, those plants are is they're extremely frosty and extremely pretty and just gorgeous plants with, you know, decent smells and everything. Um, but yeah, they don't exactly, you know, have the punch. (laughs) So, 
um, a lot of times when you have a lot of entries into a cup um, and people are having to smoke all those entries, you know, just one after another, you know, bag appeal and, you know, that kind of thing is going to really weigh out a lot on that competition. Yeah. You know. And so, and so, do you think that there's almost an inherent flaw in the way that cup judging is done these days in that, you know, there's just like the judges are just overload. Like, for example, we're trying to run a little cup in Australia at the moment. And one of the rules we're having, it's all online, but one of the rules we're having is that the judges are only, only allowed to try one sample each day. And so right, many right. people have been like, that's such a good rule. Um, oh, yeah. And it's like, and it just doesn't seem to make sense why they wouldn't do it in the States. It's like, is it is it that poorly organized that they can't get the samples out early enough? Or like, what's the deal? Just too commercialized and they don't care about it or... Too many entries a lot of the time. And yeah, really, honestly, you got it right there. They they, they don't care. I mean, uh, I love the Emerald Cup. You already know. Yep. But how can anyone judge 400, 500, 600 entries in one month? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you, you can kind of break that down into, you know, there's a lot of stuff just not even getting tried. Yeah, you have to assume, Right. 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 It's either so, that or like whatever's like hit number eight or nine of the day is just a blur. Right. <laughs> oh well. So I mean in general though, do you get concerned about that? Because I brought this up in a previous interview. Given like seed sales are affected by if a strain wins a cup, is that not a little bit of concern to you given that things which maybe shouldn't be winning are winning and likewise things which, you know, you've made which are maybe really phenomenal like they just get they they slip through the net type thing right right um i i think eventually the real quality stuff will kind of you know rise up and you know it it just might take a a little bit longer you know um you know kind of a word of mouth style versus you know everybody you know just oh it won a cup let's go get it you know yeah. I mean, stuff like Irene, horrible bag appeal, you know, um, you know, nothing to look at at all. But everybody who smokes it, she's like, you know, who are we, you know? Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about because the Irene has got a lot of traction recently. Um, again, Archive, he's done a few hybrids with it. I believe you have as well. <laughs> It's it's one of the two. The other one was the F-Cut of OG. I noticed that the F-Cut and the Irene are quite unique. You work with both of them. What do mm-hmm. you like about them, and why do you think we don't see them so much in other people's work? Well, Irene, uh, for example, is extreme, at least for a long time, she was extremely hoarded. Um, and um, uh, a handful of years ago, I got her um, from you know, you know, via a couple friends, um, from, uh, rude boy. And, um, I just, I didn't even think nothing of her, you know, I was just like, whatever. And I threw her out in my yard, you know, um, in a 200 gallon bed and grew out. And it wasn't even until, you know, late in the fall, about mid, mid, uh, September when I was like, Ooh, what's this? You know? Um, because she was just smelling something fantastic. Mm-hmm. She didn't look like nothing special all the way up until there. Um, but then, you know, uh, I gave it to, you know, Obsolete. Uh, I gave it to, you know, Doctor from Archive um, and a couple other people with uh, Rude Boys, you know, permissions, of course. 
and that's where you know um, they started making the hybrids with it and you know um, a little while after I followed suit but uh, um, she's just a really really good quality smoke I mean she's nothing to look at whatsoever and she has this weird mutant trait where uh, she grows nuggets on her stem pedials so you try trimming it, and it's like, oh, the nugs all fall off of the stems when you clip them off, and it's 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 terrible. She she doesn't have a lot of pros in those departments, but man, she is some good smoke, you know. So nice. And what about the F cut, the forks cut? The, the F cut. I mean, um, I I I, uh, I I've called it uh, Foji Kush, you know, F A U X, you know, uh, but uh, um. Early early on, that came from Dankiest OG from IC Mag, and uh, you know they 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 called it. Uh, some of my buddies named it the F cut because they were like, "Oh, it's just a fake OG," so F stood for fake, and uh, uh, it was just a, a quality cut. I mean, the first time I smelled it, I was like, "Ooh, this is some of the best smelling you know OG I've ever smelled," and it was you know grown. Um, uh, grown by dankiest himself uh when i first smelled it but uh it it definitely breeds a little bit different than some of the ogs um a lot of the ogs kind of um breed tall and lanky just like a normal og whereas this one it breeds kind of smaller and shorter so okay i don't know squad yeah um, yeah. And so, what OG cut, in your opinion, is kind of the most underrated one? You know, like what you, I, I personally, I love Larry, and I feel like it doesn't get enough credit at times. Right. I've never tried the uh, Larry myself. I've kind of wanted to, but um, I mean, uh, I tend to mostly stick with the Triangle Kush, just because that's the one I believe is you know the one that started it all, and I figure if you can you know, reverse that one, you should be able to pull out uh, all the other OG Kushes out of it, you know, um, just S1 style. So, you know, and when I breed with the the Triangle Kush um, compared to the others, um, I tend to get, you know, the broadest um, spectrum of, uh, you know, phenotypes, whereas with a lot of these others, it's like a lot narrower and tighter. Yeah. Okay. So... And so yeah, I don't know if Yeah, sorry, go on. Oh, I was just gonna say I don't know if it's, you know, underrated at all. It's just, you know, my preference for, for the OGs. Yeah, okay. And so what do you think predecessors the triangle? You know, what what was that strain that uh Matt and Josh got the bag of weed of? Well, um the the triangle kush uh that I have came um came from Big Ricky. He 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 gave it to uh um, you know, Doctor from Archive, and then Doc gave it to me. Um, but uh, that that um, cut, uh, Big Ricky, Cornbread Ricky, he claims you know he's had that since 1992, and that predates you know Matt, um, Matt and Josh's you know OG, and he claims he got it as a cut. You know, yeah, okay. Um, so I mean, he's essentially the one to talk to, but. You know, uh, some of those stories get a little hazy, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, but if you had to speculate, what do you think the parents of the of the triangle would have been? I've heard that you know, just like some land race, possibly. Like, how do you you think? Now it's a bit more refined than that. 
it, it very well could be just like a Pakistani uh, a sativa hybrid. I don't even want to get into the whole sativa thing because, <laughs> you know, I'm no sativa expert. I like them, but huh, I don't have the time to grow something that like, takes 24 weeks yet. But uh, I'm de- definitely, uh, definitely like a Pakistani uh, sativa, you know. And so if we just take a jump now from kind of the feminized chat over to the regular stuff, you know, let's dive into the Emerald uh, Pirates of the Emerald Triangle stuff. What is the next project you're looking to do under that line? You know, what's the next male you're looking to work with? Ooh, that's a, that's a good one. Um, I've been toying with a few different things. Um, I definitely want to toy around with some pine tar, pine tar Kush hybrids for sure. You know, being that I'm, you're spending the time to, you know, <laughs> grow out a huge lot of them, and then I'm going to breed directionally from from this, you know, this lot. Um, but you know, we'll see where that goes. Um, I might toy around with uh, some orange orange type stuff. Um, I've been talking to some buddies, and we're looking to put together a nice uh, um, old school orange uh, cornucopia, so to speak. So, uh, you know. Um, but uh, I don't know. Uh, I haven't made any uh, um, long-term plans quite yet. Okay. And so yeah. that orange one you just referenced, I've kind of noticed citrus in general is, like orange citrus especially, is very on the up and up. Um, even beyond just tangy, we're still seeing things like uh, clementine being used quite regularly in modern crosses. With that in mind, do you think there's something about the citrus terpenes, which um, specifically the orange ones, which allows it to kind of work as a flavor of the month more so than other things? And what I kind of get by that is, is I find that, um, like, let's just take typical tangy slash calio type terpenes. I find that they're they're sharp like a sword, like they, they cut through things. And it's like if you had a bag and it's grown well, you could have just one bud of, you know, that type of stuff in there with a whole bunch of other stuff and it just, it cuts through the rest. And so in that regard, I kind of think like it's good that like, you know, it, it's a good flavor of the month because it, it's got these characteristics which suit being flavor of the month. You know, it's really loud and obnoxious and people get a big blast out of it. Um, you know, do you think that that will persist on beyond this fad? Because it's kind of like... Calio was around, then it died out, and then Tangy came back. It's kind of revitalized it. Do you think we'll fall off again, or it'll stay more present this time? Um, I think things kind of move in circles, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, like the purple cushions and the purples and the grapes, you know, they had their heyday, and then they fell off, and then they had another heyday, and then they fell off. Um, and I think uh, it's probably, you know, the same with the oranges and the bananas and the this and that, that's and the others. Um, me personally, I, I would like to have all the flavors in a seed form so that, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, what's popular today or tomorrow or the next day, you know, I can always just be like, Oh, well I'll pop, you know, hundred of those or a hundred of these, you know? So, you know, on one side, I definitely breed for the public, but on the other side, I'm always breeding for myself. Okay. You know. And so what type of genetic base would you want to use to kind of get those orange flavors into your cross? Um as far as like the well for 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 one um there there's a good uh three or four uh clones that circulate um some of them probably held pretty tight um that are all just extremely orangey 
old school clones um, have been around for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, I've already played around a, a good little bit with the, the AE-77 Calio clone, which dates back to roughly about 1980. Um, and then there's some other ones uh, that some of uh, some of uh, uh, my buddies hold that uh, are definitely strong orange types. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm working with uh, uh, um, some other cats who uh, have some old school, I guess, uh, you know, orange uh, um, Cali-O uh, seeds. So um, I might, you know, just try starting there and see where that leads me. Do you find you know? that some of the current modern orange hybrids are a little lacking in potency? You know, um, most of the orange strains um, seem to be a little lower, you know, on the potency tip for sure. Um, I honestly don't think I've come across anything just um, super orangey and super potent at the same time. So Yeah, interesting, interesting. And so if we just jump back to the work you're going to do um, with the males, do you mm-hmm. want to specifically look to just breed with heirloom males? Um, because that's already a trend. You know, if we look at the previous Pakistani release you did, maybe I should more ask, do you have, do you have a bit of a thing for Pakistanis? You know, we got the, the PTK <laughs> and then your, your original releases. Um, can we expect more Pakistanis or maybe different land races or just modern males even? Um, I definitely like to lean towards the, um, the heirloom land races, but, uh, um, you know, quality inbred, uh, um, you know, older lines are definitely a potential as well. Um, one, one thing, uh, I think, uh, even just, a um, like a, a redux or something, uh, um, I, th- I almost think that if you take a, uh, a strong terpenaline male, like, uh, I found in the, uh, the uh, Pakistani chitrals, and if you cross that with, uh, you know, some type of Cali-O, um, I think that terpenaline added to the orange actually is one of the ingredients to um, kind of almost spike that orange pungency, you know, through the roof. Okay, you know. interesting. Yeah, I had a feeling that the terpenes definitely played some role in that, especially if you consider, like, if we just both agreed that, orange terpene weeds tend to tend to be a bit lower well that's maybe a good indication that terpenes play some bigger role in that all um a a follow-up question to the previous one i wanted to ask though is did you ever get like weird questions or funny looks from people given you called it like for example you'd be like oh this is the chemdog f1 the purple local f1 because while it was correct in the naming sense it is a little bit ambiguous for what today's buyers are used to and while someone who's more experienced probably wouldn't have an issue with it i think some people were probably like what like is this just pure chem dog or like you know something like that right you know i mean i i get tired of the name game <laughs> like a lot of us do um and yeah for for those um i i almost just wanted to breed them for myself and start from a starting point where I can just call them F1s, F2s, F3s, F4s, back cross ones, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I figured, you know, if, if people already are going to name their keeper cuts, whatever they want, you know, which is kind of commonplace these days. So I was just like, I'm just going to get lazy on this and just F1, just call them all F1s and, 
you know, the the lineage is right there on the package, so it's, <laughs> you know, no no dispute what it is. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I definitely there there was a small handful of of nitpickers being like, oh, how can you call <laughs> you know the clone F one? I'm like, you know, <laughs> come up with your own name. Yeah. I don't care what the name is. It's an you, you see what it is. <laughs> so so it's an interesting point you just mentioned about people naming their favorite clones. I'm I'm certainly guilty of that myself. But I think the one little caveat I place on myself is I only do it if I feel the clone is not only a keeper but also quite unique from what you would typically get from that stock. So it's almost like a little bit of its own thing in a certain regard. Um, right. And, uh, but, but like it still muddies the waters because you've got someone like me who's like fanatic about making sure things are listed correctly and all that because I'm, I, you know, I deal with how muddied it gets firsthand all the time. But at the same time, mm-hmm. I can understand, you know, like me having a name for something and then maybe if in afterwards I put brackets like, you know, whatever, like the actual genetics. Um, it might be confusing for some, especially people who aren't as fanatical, like maybe they just pick and choose which parts they want to say it is or whatever. Do you think that's a practice in general we should just avoid and find some better way of, you know, like naming our favorite clones or whatever? Or do you think like on the whole it's not that damaging, I guess, to the whole name game considering where we're at? Yeah, no, it definitely gets tough. I mean, I'm I'm a nitpicker myself when it comes to lineages and history and changing names and stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've I grew up with that kind of stuff where you know, um, early, early on we you know there was a train wreck and then you know five years later somebody else is calling something different train wreck. And then they, you know, give out hundreds, if not thousands of clones. And all of a sudden, everybody, you know, knows that they're cut as train wreck, whereas we knew something else as train wreck. So the, the name game is, is it's definitely tough. I mean, yeah, I, there's, there's no right answer to it. <laughs> and just out of curiosity, um, in a previous episode, Bob Hempel mentioned he's had train wreck so long. He's just like so over it nowadays, like so sick of the Turp profile. Has that happened to you as well? He's, he says it happens to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I definitely go, don't almost ever go for my, my train wreck bag, but uh, I, I still, you know, have sentiment, you know, sentimentality, that, that word. Yeah. Um, for, for train wreck, you know, it was one of the earlier ones. Um, I think I got it in like 99. Um, we were buying sacks of it, you know, back in 1994, you know, um, uh, it, it was actually different than the 99 one, but, you know, <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, yeah, you can definitely get tired of some things, but I try not to throw the ones I like to away. Yeah. Yeah. I think he actually ex- expressed a similar sentiment. Um, what I would be interested in knowing though is, what do you think the genetics are of train wreck? Because everyone, I feel like it's almost, people don't want to guess because they're like, oh, well, you know, train wreck was just a name for the style of breeding where you just put it all, you know, like the one male around all the females and just let it go. And I get that, that's cool. But I still feel like the people in the know would be able to have some kind of guess of what it is, you know. Like I've heard, you know, it's like a three-way hybrid of land races or something like that. Like, what do you think? You, you know, um, considering the fact that you know, um, the, the one that, you know, spread out, um, from Arcata, um, in the late nineties is not the same one. I, I kind of tend to think that, 
it, it, it might have been uh, almost the terpene profile that, you know, if you smell that terpenaline, you know, it's it, it's the same uh, terpenaline that's in Durban poison, you know. Um, so I, um, I kind of wonder if it's just not, oh, you smell that and you think, oh, that's train wreck. Because the earliest dated train wreck literature that I've come across um, is from 1982 in Mendocino County. Wow. That 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 dates it back you know yeah i mean it was nothing but land races and train wreck you know (laughs) (laughs) that yeah so and so just as a bit of a curiosity question as far as you're aware what's the oldest clone in existence i'll give you i'll give you a hint if you want a few people have said yeah probably romulan oh um yeah, I don't even know how, how old Romulan is um, or even how available a legit piece of Romulan is mm. because Romulan's one of those ones that kind of got uh, screwed up a lot, you know, in the whole BC scene where they Federation. started, yeah, they started putting out a bunch of hybrids as Romulan. And so everybody has a hybrid of Romulan that they're calling Romulan. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, does that one date all the way back to Mendocino and the California Blue Indicas? I've heard it goes back to 69. Damn. Huh. Interesting. But, but it kind of, what you said does hold true because what I heard was the case. So, basically, there was a guy and he was kind of doing his own thing for ages and he had got it off Romulan Joe in 69 and then when, like, you know, the internet came about, he came back. So, I think there's a whole uh-huh. lot of room in that time frame for things to have changed, as you okay. said. But... In saying that, you know, I've got a few good friends who they're, they're pretty confident it's the real deal. And so, you know, I, who am I to say otherwise? But, um, yeah, right. th- as far as I'm aware, the cut was lost, so to speak, to the masses. And then it was just this guy who popped back up and um, was kind of like, oh, no, you know, I, I got it. And I've just been a hermit for the last 30 years or whatever. So, hey. yeah, like, if it's true, shout out to that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I actually was uh, kind of curious to... Um, check out that cut because that cut is if if i'm not mistaken the original romulan cut is kind of almost a a lankier um plant with popcorn nuggets um you know kind of like og but a a different looking plant for sure Um, so i mean i've heard a lot of people say that the pnw hash plant is the source of a lot of really good cuts, um, potentially the the same hash plant that Neville originally used in the seed bank to create a lot of his lines. Um, right. I think I've seen that you've got that one or you had some experience with it. What's your opinions on that? Um, I'm not going to say I have that one. I have an old hash plant from up in the Seattle area, Pacific Northwest, um, but also there's a bunch of hash plants up there, you know, um, like the U-dubs and all those. Um, so it's definitely one I can't, you know, trace back to, okay, and say for sure this is, you know, the one or whatever. Um, but I, I, I know whatever whatever Neville, you know, collected and worked with was definitely a, a quality piece for sure. Yeah, and so – do you value like his stock as the highest stuff you could possibly get? Like if someone said to you, I've got a pack of the seed bank, I've got a pack of SSSC and I've got a pack of bowl gear, you know, brothers of the eternal love, which one would you pick? 
Uh, I'd probably tend to go with bowl. <laughs> yeah. And so what out of their stuff would you be most interested in if you could get it? I just mean, you know, uh, I, I like the original sources. Neville seemed to be like a, a collector who came over to the U.S. And Bull seemed to be like not so much collectors, but essentially collectors who collected from other, you know, the sources of origin. So Neville is like a step removed from where you kind of want to get the, you know, the stuff from. And all Neville stuff was, all, you know, hybrids anyway. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't do pure lines. Another yeah. thing which I was interested in is I, I'd heard that some of the bowl stock was hit and miss, which I thought was interesting because mm-hmm. it's like if you thought about it, you would, you'd swear that it's got to be the most undiluted point, so to speak, where you could get seeds from at least commercially in the Western world. Do you agree that it would have been hit and miss or do you think, no, it should have been all fire? No, definitely hit and miss because land, pure land race, uh, you know, seeds are extremely variable. And the amount of breeding that, you know, has actually been done on a lot of them is, is, is not, it's not very selective, you know, at least from what I've seen, you know. Um, so, yeah, I can definitely imagine, you know, just based off my own, you know, land race, you know, preservation runs, you know, there's, there's a lot of garbage and then you can, you know, fine, good stuff, but it's, it's not what most people want. It's it's also why I don't sell any of that kind of stuff is because even though people think they want it, they really don't want it, you know. <laughs> they they grow out a 10-pack and they're like, oh, fuck pirates, you know. <laughs> all these, you know, breeds this crap, <laughs> you know. Okay. So, and so yeah. would you ever consider maybe taking a, a very select stable phenotype from a land race stock you found and maybe like doing some S1s on it, seeing how stable it is and releasing that where it's like, look, you want the land race Afghani, here's a somewhat refined but still undiluted version of it. Right. Well, e- even better, uh, um, w- w- when I take a, uh, a land race and actually grow out 100 or 200 of them or even something, you know, as a simple as a preserve, you know, um, you know, heirloom land race like Pine Tar Kush, um, my, my step one is always to um, do an open pollination where I take all the boys and I pollinate all the girls. Um, and then I, I, when I do that, I also make my selections for the next round and I pull out all the select boys and all the select girls, the best of the best of those big lots, and then I directionally breed those. So it's, you know, it tightens it up a lot and gets rid of all the garbage. And for, you know, um, you know, for a next generation, if I sprout those seeds, it's going to be, a, you know, a lot more uniform, a lot more quality. And then, you know, I can go from there, you know, um, with multiple generations to really isolate quality. It's all about selection. That's all breeding is. Okay. So I've got a bit of a hairy question, which might be hard to answer, might be easy. People often talk about if you were to get land race genetics yourself, you'd likely have to do some, you know, refining, some culling, all of the usual business they mention. My question is, in relation to a lot of Southeast Asian land races, people will always say, expect some hermaphrodites. What would you do, though, if basically every female you had showed hermaphroditic traits have you just like hit the, the losing ticket there or is it possible 
to breed those together and then in the F2s to try to find something which didn't hermaphrodite or is it just like, you know, not worth wasting your time if you can't find semi-stableness in the first generation? Right. I, I would definitely say open pollinate, uh, just like I do already, um, all your females times all your males and then grow out as large of a lot as you can and pull out um, the least hermaphroditic out of the bunch and then, you know, breed further with those. Um, and oftentimes, um, if, you know, you narrow it down like that, then you uh, can outcross it to, you know, uh, something else that's probably more stable. And then get into the F2s of that and actually pull something out that, you know, potentially won't have the problems. So, so if people take a glance back at those earliest seed bank magazines, often there'll be a little comment saying, oh, inbred for four generations or something along those lines. Is that mm-hmm. the type of time frame you should expect if you're going to try to embark in such a product, uh, a project? Or is that the time frame to expect if you want to do it to the highest level? Because a lot of people will say that, you know, like the early gear was phenomenal and some will say, well, that's because it was done properly. Is four generations like overkill to the point where like you're going to have a really, really good product or just the standard? Well, honestly, uh, a lot of the old ones, um, uh, they, they pushed F1s. Like they, they searched, you know, line A and line B. They either used a clone for, you know, the mother and then searched, you know, through a lot of plants for, you know, the male and then, you know, they released F1s a lot of times, you know. Um, uh, oftentimes, um, it all depends on how, how well it's bred, you know, between, you know, F1 and F4, whether that F4 is quality or garbage, you know. And unless you grow them out, that's the only way to tell. Yeah, and that's kind of, I guess, a point that perplexed me for a long time, you know. Back in the day theoretically, there was the least amount of information about cannabis breeding around. Of course, there's general breeding philosophies which are applicable to cannabis and Neville was utilizing those. But what I struggle to understand is, like you just referenced, someone takes an F1, takes it to the F4, usually it's shit by the F4 because they haven't done good selection along each step of the way. And so it's horrible. Right. And so, like, it's hard for me to believe that a certain amount of that didn't happen with Neville because it's almost like what he was just like, or, or like extending it to most breeders back then. You know, it's like what everyone took things several generations. It was always an improvement at each step. They seemingly did it. You know, like it didn't take them a year to do each generation. They seemingly did it probably like you know each three month cycle. They progressed a generation. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it's like were, were they like gods of selection? Like how you know what I mean? It just seems odd because I've got some Apollo thirteen F fours and I got some F ones, and it's just like night and day difference. And so I can't help but feel like a similar thing must have happened to a smaller degree, maybe. Right, right, and a lot of times breeders aren't uh, selecting from very big pools at all. I mean, I've, I've, I've read how, you know, um, certain breeders, you know, are only selecting from 10 seeds at a, at a run. I'm like, well, you know, that's, it's not much, that's not much reading right there. I mean, um, I could do a lot of work if I'm only doing from 10, but I like to work with at least a hundred. And if it was a perfect world, yeah, thousands would be real nice. Yeah. You know, and so, so, I read an article and it says that you are really, well, this is going to sound funny, but it said you're a really good interview because you're able to articulate your thoughts on males quite well. And I think 
honestly, that's probably the question most people listening to this show are interested in, you know. How, how would you describe your ideal male, you know? Is it dependent on each project? And more importantly, what characteristics to you are good characteristics that you look for? Oh, I mean, um, I'm, I'm fairly simple with the, the boys. Um, ideally, I'm looking for um, something that, you know, uh, puts on some frost, um, is stinky, um, and usually that's kind of a benefit too, you know, if, if they're frosty, you can actually get, you know, some of their terpene, terpene profiles off of them. Um, I've got buddies, uh, like with a 707 seed bank. Um, he, uh, and I think, uh, archive might do it a little bit too, but 707, he, uh, um, he, uh, reverses all those males with Florel so he can really get a good solid, you know, um, smell on you know what they're like and kind of get a, a better look because it reverses them and makes them kind of more of a female plant. Um, but yeah, uh, frosty males, um, you know, stinky males, and then bottom line is uh, you know grow out the progeny and see what happens. And so I guess it goes without saying because I mean you just mentioned it. You, you think that resinous males are good or maybe superior to others. Do you believe, though, that the uh, the terpene profile you get off rubbing those trichomes is pretty much what it's going to pass on, or there'll be some variation, or it may not have any correlation? It really depends. Um, it, it depends if the um, if those uh, terpenes are recessive or dominant. You know, I've had some males that are extremely dominant, and then others that just you know go right underneath, you know, and the, um, and the females chirps, you know, pop right out on top. So, um, it's extremely variable. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. so how do you feel about the idea proposed by both, there's a lot of readers actually, but like notably DJ Short and Tom Hill throw their weight behind it, that the idea that there may be something to males that also produce a few pistols, um, in terms of them being, like, quite good males, you know? Like, I guess what you would say is males showing intersex traits of being a female, you know? How do you feel about that? Um, honestly, I, I definitely don't agree um, that um, males that show intersex are, are better. Um, I think um, Sam Skunkman said it best, uh, you know, a herm is a herm. It doesn't matter if it's a female herm or a male herm. And I've seen plenty of male herms, you know. Um, and a lot of people, I don't think, even um, spot the, the male herms out because most breeders, I think, kill their males two to three weeks into flower and don't even flower out the males. And a male is just like a female. He's going to herm a, a lot of times between six and eight weeks into flower. And also, a male is going to tend to frost up, you know, six to eight weeks into flower, just like that female, you know. I mean, so a lot of people, they kill their males before they ever frost up, before they really get their terpenes, you know, um, fully, you know, developed. Um, and so they never really know what they're breeding with, you know. So, and so, you know, I... Oh, sorry, go on. Oh, no, I, I mean, uh, I, I tend to, you know... Um, oftentimes I'll let my, my, my male plants flower out like a full eight weeks or more, you know, just to see what, what they produce. 
Yeah. Just out of curiosity, have you ever seen a male plant do a similar thing to a female where, like, at the end of the flower cycle, it'll produce some intersex, um, you know, like, nodes in order to maybe try to self-replicate? Or do you think that's more of, like, a, a deeply ingrained female trait as opposed to a male trait? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's what I was saying. Uh, a lot of times the males don't don't uh, put on pistols um, until six weeks or further into flower. Yeah. Interesting. And and if you were to get some of those seeds created on the male pistols and you pop them, mm-hmm. what would you expect the yeah. offspring to be like? You know, I've never sprouted them, and I've got at least three lots of seeds that are male times males in my fridge. Um, some of them I've had there for quite some time. Um, and if we're gonna, you know, if we're gonna believe uh, guys um, like Sam the Skunk Man, who's actually sprouted these se- these seeds and grown them, uh, supposedly they come up with uh, um, something like twenty five percent female plants, uh, and then fifty uh, percent kind of inter intersex male plants, and then twenty five percent male plants, but. Uh, I haven't personally sprouted them, <laughs> so. So, as like maybe a smaller breeder who doesn't have like a, not not you, but as someone else who doesn't have a lot of facilities, maybe they're just toying around with their like you know a few tents or whatever. Is there any way yeah. you could recommend being able to hold on to a male and being able to flower it out the full length without just ruining your crop? Uh, that's that that's tough. I mean, um, w- when I do it. Um, I either um, am doing my open pollinations, and so I just leave the males in the room for the whole time and just take care of them to the end, or other times I have uh, pulled out all the males um, and uh, um, basically just filled a, a full you know, a four by four tent with something like 80 or so males um, and uh, you know just kept them, you know, going in little six inch square pots, you know, for eight weeks, you know, it, it, it gives you that idea of what you, you know, what you're looking for. But, um, yeah, as long as you have an isolated space, um, it's not near the females, it's just fine. Okay. And I mean, you just kind mm-hmm. of mentioned an interesting topic. We've asked a few different guests, what in your opinion is the ideal way to pheno hunt? And so what I mean by that is, is What's the smallest size pot, for example, that you think you can run a plant in and you, you still get an accurate representation of the plant, but, you know, like it's, it's fairly small and you can fit a bunch of them in and do some good hunting? Yeah. Um, I think the smallest I'd prefer to do is probably about like a two-gallon, a two-gallon pot, um, which, you know, uh, the two-galloners I use, you can put 36 on a table. Any smaller than that, and uh, I don't know if you're getting... Um, of, uh, enough of a representation and you're going to lose quite a few because of you know plants drowning out and just being too small to keep up and, yeah 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 and so <laughs> something people will probably notice if they check out your instagram is um you're a fan of running like the beds with the, like all the same <laughs> strain in the bed are you like a big advocate to this do you think people really need to start doing it themselves or do you think it just happens to suit you and you know it might not work for everyone um, beds definitely, uh, um, have their pros and cons. Um, I generally have way more stuff than I can handle and I don't have a big crew to help me. So I need, you know, stuff to be as easy as possible. And so, 
you know, for me, uh, you know, running 10 or 20 beds is like running 10 or 20 pots, you know. I mean, I only have to water 10 or 20, um, you know, versus hundreds and hundreds of pots, you know. So it's it's definitely a necessity for, you know, um, somebody who's not running a big crew or anything. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And do you find <clears throat> that uh, the plants will try to outcompete each other if they're not of the same strain? Because that's an idea that gets thrown around a lot, but I've never actually toyed with it myself where, you know, like people say, oh, if you run... If you run all all seeds from the same strain, like they'll just they'll exist harmoniously. But if it's two different strains, they'll fight each other, and you know one will come out on top. Do you think that's a bit of an overstatement? Um, no, no. Um, if 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 you have something fast growing, um, in the beds, uh, yeah, uh, and something slow growing, yeah, the 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 fast growing ones are gonna blow away the others. I always try to kind of match what I'm growing in my beds. I either do a full bed of just, you know, one, one type or I, uh, you know, just make sure that they're planted so that, you know, nothing's going to get, you know, drowned out. And sure, even still, you know, there's still seedlings and plants that do get drowned out from time to time, but I'm always running, you know, 16, 25, 36, you know, or more per bed. So, um, you know, I, I get most of them to come out. Yeah, I, no, I was going to say, looking at um, some of the, I believe it was the Purple Urkel TK hybrids um, or mm-hmm. something along those lines, they were, they were all really uniform. I was so blown away, impressed. I was like, fuck, like, that, w- that seems oh, like it would have been a challenge to keep that going happy. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I mean, uh, luckily, I've had a lot of experience doing it. So um, some of these runs just, you know, you, you throw them in, you trigger them two weeks later and they just do it all themselves. So yeah. Awesome. You know, and just uh, a quick little curiosity question. Do you use CO2 at all? I think that it's fat, it's fallen off a lot. Like I think it used to be a lot more of a bigger thing than it is now. Like where do you sit on that one? I have, um, I, I toyed around with it 20 years ago, um, a little bit. Um, but I, I've never, I've never really used CO2 at all. Um, and you know, when, when I was commercially cropping inside, I mean, I was still pulling, you know, two, two and a half upwards of three pounds of light. Um, even on some of my seed runs, you know, where I'm growing straight from seed, I'm, I'm hitting two, two and a half pounds of light. Um, so, uh, no CO2, uh, passive, passive intake, just active exhaust and no air conditions, air conditioners or nothing like that. But I'm also on the coast, so, you know, it's cool uh, in my neighborhood. Okay. And just um, to clarify for everyone, are you an organic guy? Are you a a bottled guy? Where do you sit on it all? How do you – do you feel it affects the end product ultimately? Oh, yeah. I'm I'm organic, um, and I'm extremely simple. Uh, I really don't use barely any bottles at all. Um, I mix dry amendments uh, into my beds – you know, like fish meals, bone meals, uh, or like fish bone meals, kelp, this, that, the other. Um, and I just mix all that stuff in, you know, at the beginning of each run. And then I water with plain water as simple as it can get. Uh, and, and basically I'm prepping to do, you know, a really big indoor organic grow in the future. Um, that's going to be automated. So that's what I'm working kind of my, my, uh, my, my setup towards, you know, just automated organic pure water, you know, 
um, yeah, keep it simple. Yeah, mm-hmm. man after my heart. <laughs> um, so, with that being said, do you find that the end product is is dramatically different? Like, I'm of the opinion that um, you know, I guess anything grown to the highest level is going to be really good. But as a general rule right. of thumb, I find organic, even if it was, let's just say you had a strain and you only consider it to have been grown to say 80% of its potential. And we have two buds, one organic, one synthetic, or, you know, like bottled nutrient type thing. I believe that if it's not maxing out, I think if they were both 100% well-grown, they'd be pretty similar. But if we're just talking, say, 80% or less than 100, which I think is the realistic situation most of the time, it's not grown absolutely perfectly. I think the organic one wins out by a fair margin. Do you agree with that or do you think maybe it's a more of a closer race than I'm giving it credit? Um, honestly, I think sometimes uh, some of my buddies' stuff that combine organics and chemicals, um, you know, uh, tend to tend to be a little more pungent and almost a little more tasty than just pure pure organics like I do. Um, years ago, I used to do a, a chemical organic, you know, thing, and I, I think I it, it definitely came out more pungent when when I was combining the things. Um, it was um, I, I was definitely getting high yields back then, um, using a lot of bottled this is and that's and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I I haven't honestly done a side by side trial to really. I think that would be the best bet, you know, just side by side, same environment, same everything. But you know, keep one organic, do one, you know, chemical, and then you know, see what you know really. Uh, your taste buds tell you, you know what I mean. You know, are you a bit of a um, an organic snob? You know, like, are you happy to try whatever, or you know, like, would you get down on some Jungle Boys stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try some stuff, even um, even if I don't know where or how it's grown. I think we we all uh, tend to uh, take in and imbibe uh, stuff that hasn't been, you know done the best so from time to time so i'll I'll try a variety of stuff awesome Mm -hmm. awesome so let's change topic for a moment get to subject near and dear to my heart and probably most people who listen to the show chemdog you are actually probably one of the i guess to the public one of the lesser known aficionados but for the people in the know i think a lot of people know that you are probably one of the foremost chemdog experts especially in regards to um, how they grow, being able to compare them between each other. Often I hear people tell me, you know, parts of the Skunk VA story, which I'm very familiar with, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, and Skunk VA posted online. And Inspector was the guy who vouched for him and was like, yeah, that's the chem dog. And I went and checked the thread, and sure enough, you are the first person to kind of chime in and be like, yep, that's definitely the 91. And so, yeah, you know, why don't you give us a quick little rundown on your history with the chem dog and how you kind of got entwined in it all? Yeah, that was an accident right there. <laughs> uh, so basically, uh, um, it kind of stems from uh, Jason King's Canna Bible. Um, that came out um, early 2000s, and he was raving about this chem dog, right? And so um, it was kind of on my list of, you know, if I ever came across it, you know, I'd, I'd love to check it out. Well, you know, come about 2004, 2005, um, you know, I got a, a chem dog cut, um, you know, from one of my buddies and doing research on it. 
it didn't look nothing like a chem dog, you know, at least uh, what I believe to be, you know, a legit chem dog. And then uh, um, I was talking to my buddy set at uh, 707 Seed Bank, and he was like, oh, well, you know, I've got the original chem dog from Skunk VA. And I was like, well, sweet, you know. And so, you know, he he basically gave me, uh, you know, the chem dog he had gotten directly off of Skunk VA. And um, Skunk VA, you know, he was on Overgrow back around 2005, and he had posted pictures up. And I think G was on there, and G was like, yep, that's the chem dog. So everybody, you know, who was pertinent to the discussion had, you know, pretty much validated Skunk VA's chem dog as the one you need. So I was like, that's the only one I want right there. And then when G sent uh, Joe Brand some seeds, and Joe Brand started the one through four, um, you know, I, I, I told my buddy at the time, you know, hey, you know, run down to Sonoma and, you know, get me some cuts off those seed plants because he'd been talking to them. So he did that. And he was all excited about this, that, and the other ChemDog hybrid. And all I, all I wanted was that ChemDog 1 through 4. And so I got those. And then when G came out to, uh, to do his 2006 tour, you know, uh, he, he gave, uh, you know, multiple buddies uh, the, the ChemDog D and the ChemDog sister. So I got those, you know, from Obsolete. And then I also got another ChemDog D from Joe Brand. Um, but essentially, you know, by 2006, I had, I think, what, seven different chem dogs, you know, all from, you know, the sources. And so, you know, I grew them all out. And, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so how did you kind of go from having grown them to being more kind of what I consider to be the man who a lot of people think is possibly the only holder of like the one, two, the one and two, because I think you were the only one who really put up like detailed descriptions and photographs of the one and two. And everyone's always really interested, like, do they still exist? And because there's kind of a bit of a vacuum around that general discussion, I think people just assume like, oh, inspectors probably got it. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of funny because when I ran those four out, um, Joe Brand, he, he sprouted the seeds and he grew them out that summer in uh, 2006. Um, he really only gave the one through four to two people, me and this uh, this other cat um, down around the bay, I think, um, who's actually um, turns out as buddies with, you know, some of my buddies down in Mendo. But anyways, um, so there was only two people who ever had the one through four um, aside from Joe Brand. Um, and, uh, um, anyways, uh, when I ran all four of them out, um, I wasn't a huge fan of the number one. It was kind of, um, kind of a more hazy thing, more sativa thing, just floofy buds. Um, didn't really have the smell profile that I really cared for. Um, I really liked the two though. It had like cushy popcorn nugs on it. Um, had a like a bubblegum diesel smell to it. Uh, it was really nice. Anyways, um, so I, I gave, uh, I think, at least three or four of my buddies um, the ChemDog 2 cut. Um, and then I kind of, right around that time, or a little after that time, I kind of just dropped my entire mother collection and took like a three-year vacation, a little sabbatical. Um, well, when I came back, 
um, my buddies are all, you know, they all have the chem dog too and I get it back and I grow it out and I'm like, wait, what the fuck? It's not even chem dog too. You know, I had scrapped the chem dog one or so I thought, well, I, as soon as I grew it out, I, I, I knew I was like, oh man. And every single buddy I had given it to same thing. Um, so, uh, I had accidentally given everybody chem dog number one and nobody had chem dog number two. So to this day, we still have chem dog number one, but nobody's seen chem dog number two since about 2007, 2008. So, um, but the, the chem dog number one is kind of unique. I mean, it's extremely high in myrcene. It tests at, I think, upwards of like 4% myrcene, which is really strong for just a, you know, a monoterpene um, um, or whatever they call it. And uh, um, it, it's a 12, 12 plus weaker, um, just as potent as any of the other chem dogs. Um, but uh, yeah, it hasn't it hasn't really gotten too widespread since uh, since Joe Brand start, sprouted that seed. And I think pretty much anybody who has it um, got it from from me or you know one of my buddies who I originally gave it to. Okay, and do you think the Chem 2 is most likely just gone in general, or do you think maybe someone's got it? It's it's definitely gone. I mean, I made a couple hybrids with it back in 06, 07. Um, you know, uh, Chrome Chrome grew uh, the Chem Dog 2 across a deep chunk that I made, uh, I think, in 07. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's safely gone. Okay, and then so I guess the big ultimate money question is, what do you think the genetics behind it all are? Like ChemDog? Yeah, where do you think the ChemDog comes from? I think ChemDog is just a... Um, I mean, uh, I've, my, my uncle, uh, growing up, um, he was a professional photographer, and he kind of traveled the world a little bit, um, collecting seeds, taking pictures, and then he brought a bunch of those home, and so I've got, you know, he passed away in the eighties, the mid late eighties. And so I've got all these pictures that he took of, you know, these pure land race indicas and sativas and everything that he grew out. And, uh, um, the chem 91 is very similar to some of these pure land race indicas, um, that he had in the early eighties. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't something pure like that, or maybe even just you know, um, some type of Mexican, uh, you know, indica, or you know, some type of sativa indica hybrid, you know, from the early days back in Oregon, because you know, Joe Brand is adamant that that came from you know, th- those pounds came from uh, you know, southern Oregon area. So you're one of the few people who I know still has contact with Joe Brand. What can you tell us about Joe B? You know, what's he doing? Does he plan on popping his head up again? He wants to. He wants to. He's trying to get his life back together. That's for sure. You know. Um, so ho- hopefully it works out and he doesn't get caught up in things again. You know. Yeah. Um, he's definitely been through a rough ten years. That's for sure. So, if we just jump back to the feminizing for a moment, you've asked a fair few lines. 
which one, in your opinion, has the most treasure locked inside of it, which maybe isn't apparent on face value? Like, you know, if we reference the the bubba you mentioned earlier, it has that lemon lime in it. You know, I guess that's not really self-evident that's locked in there by any means. What, what in uh-huh. your opinion, yeah, is the greatest treasure trove straight into S1, I guess? Oh, see, that's a tough one because I really love a lot of the S1 Bubbas. Um, they're extremely unique. Uh, some of the Urkels, they're they're rare, but there's some just pure grapey, you know, uh, I don't know, just potty, just um, really high quality um, ones in there. But overall, um, my favorite, I think, and this is just a personal thing, um, is uh, the Mendo- Mendocino Purple S1s. Um, there's so much variation in those, so many different terpenes. Um, it, it's it's extremely uh, variable in, in in the S ones um, with so many different plants and just expressions. Uh, it's definitely bar none my favorite, even though it's not you know even remotely one of the more potent uh, you know ones out of the bunch. Yeah, no worries. And so I mean. We heard from Bob Hemphill in a previous episode, um, you know, that Not So Dog was the guy who popped the seeds. Do you know if it's true yeah. that he initially actually got two seeds and there was a male and he may or may not have culled it? Yeah. Um, okay. So when I met Not So Dog, um, he actually hit me up on Instagram and I had known some of his, you know, friends and acquaintances and buddies over the years. And turns out we'd uh, we'd even been to the same parties down in like Sonoma and Mendocino and stuff, um, but we'd never met. And anyways, he hits me up on uh, Instagram, and he's like, "Hey, you know, I'm the one who sprouted the seed, blah blah blah." And I'm like, um, "From from probably almost ten years ago, um, I had met some kids who actually knew him, and they had told me his you know story way back then." And I was like. You know, um, didn't you have a, a male and a female, you know, and then the male um, accidentally got killed when a light fell and lopped off its top. And he's like, how did you know that story? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I, I got a weird memory and, you know, I, I might have met, you know, some of your friends. But, yeah, he's like, I didn't tell almost anybody that story. And, yeah, anyways, so... He, he he knew I was legit. I knew he was legit because his story was like just added up, you know, all the way. So yeah, yeah, we've we've buddies ever since. That's awesome. And what do you do? You think it's pretty safe to say that male would have been something special, also? <laughs> it could have been. It could have been. Yeah, but. <laughs> and so, what do you think about the idea of if you pop? feminized seeds and you find a full-on male so it's not like a female that shows male tendencies but it's just a straight male and you can't find signs of a female what do you think the go with that plan is like is it safe to treat it as if it's a male like if you wanted to breed with it would you go ahead or you know i'm in a tough position uh with that one because i have grown out literally thousands of feminized seeds that i've made and I still have yet to find one single legitimate male. Um, I've followed other people who have supposedly made the same exact uh, S1s and S1 hybrids, um, and they've pulled like multiple males out of their stuff. 
Um, so uh, I honestly think, you know, 99.9% of males found in feminized seeds are from pollen contamination. Um, basically, there's male pollen somewhere. And, uh, yeah, um, that's where the males come from. Um, in all my growing of S1s, I've found what initially sexed or sexed as male. And one of them, um, it was obviously a Pakistani hybrid. And I had done a Pakistani um, pollination in the room the round before. And I had thought I thought I cleaned the room proper. But I'm pretty sure, you know, obviously I, I missed one grain of pollen, you know. Um, and then another time, so that, that right there is pollen contamination. Um, the other time I had a bomb threat feminized hybrid um, sexing as a male. Um, and about two weeks into flower, it was all balls. And then it just started putting on hairs. And it went full female after that. So that is just an extreme hermaphrodite. So... Out of out of thousands of femmes, that that's my experience with males, and I think pollen contamination um, is is the majority of the males that people find. But who knows? Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems like a plausible explanation. While we're on that topic right. of like, I guess you know, kind of uh, underlying issues with seed production, how do you feel mm-hmm. about the rise of l- the more larger? breeders who i guess essentially have the market and the resources to outsource their seed production do you do you think that this is we're entering like a bit of shaky ground with that or do you think that quality control is not likely to suffer from doing so um i i definitely think there's a some definite pitfalls with that i mean some of the stories i've heard and i'm sure you've heard plenty of them too um a lot of these big companies, they don't make their own seeds. And a lot of times you see people growing some of their seeds out and it is not even remotely as advertised. You know, um, they, they're pretending they're using or they're saying they're using this cut or that cut or the other. And it doesn't resemble anything what they're saying, you know, as far as progeny goes. I mean, uh, I, I don't, me personally, I don't believe in the outsourcing at all myself. Um, but I know most of the the big companies do it. Would you ever consider kind of scaling up your operation to have, like, I guess a bigger crew involved, or do you always want to keep it reasonably hands-on yourself? Um, I think as long as, you know, um, I have a good oversight on everything, um, I could probably, uh, you know, handle, handle doing it with the crew, um, and as things, you know, progress, at least here in California, um, I'm definitely needed, you know, going to need to go that way. Um, I mean, I have a small crew now, but, you know, ideally, you know, you need a, a quite a large crew to go through the kind of numbers and, you know, um, doing as much of the research and development as I'd like to do. So definitely going to need, you know, a handful of growers and, you know, just workers and all that kind of thing to to do a project like that. Yeah, okay. And so, you know. we've mentioned a few times in the episode already, like the terpene content of plants. I'm noticing that terpene content seems to be quickly overtaking 
in terms of like consumer preference, the idea of like THC percentages. You know, it's like first THC percentages came around, people got hooked on that idea. Now terpene percentages are out, you know, more popular. People seem to be like it's gaining traction readily, like the idea of let's get real high terpene strains. Do you think that this is going to be a lasting trend or just more of a fad thing? Because I guess the underlying kind of idea is that at the end of the day, as much as the numbers of THC values, you know, may be boosted or detracted from the popularity of certain strains, people still kind of agree that, you know, like it's just about smoking it and like that's kind of the best measure at the end of the day. Do you think that Mm -hmm. will probably apply to the terpenes as well or you think it'll be like a lasting thing? I think it'll last at least for a good while, especially considering um, a lot of the higher terpene uh, strains um, people are using for concentrates. And so you don't even necessarily need that high of a THC to make a, you know, high THC, you know, potent, you know, concentrate. And then so then all you need really is your, uh, you know, uh, high terpene, you know, content. So. I think especially the way, you know, everybody's going with, you know, the flavors and all that, um, you know, it, it, it'll stick around for a good while, I think. And do you buy into the whole flavor game? Oh, I love flavors, you know. Otherwise, you know, I wouldn't have a hundred different, you know, <laughs> cuts sitting in my mother room. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I love oranges, grapes, you know, apples, you know. I, I love all skunks and all, all, all the others, you know, so... And is that um, something you strive for in the breeding? Like, if you were to kind of list the main attributes you're looking to breed when you do a project, like, you know, like good structure, good yield, you know, all that type of stuff, is a good flavor profile something you highly value or not necessarily? Oh, definitely. Um, my, 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 two, uh, um, my two criteria um, generally are effect you know, and not necessarily high THC, but just quality effect for, you know, my chemistry. Um, and then, you know, flavor, you know? Um, so aside from that, I, I, I don't breed for a sturdy, fast grown, big plant, you know, none of that kind of stuff. I want flavor and effect and everything else. If it falls in, it's cool. If not, you know, I got what I want, you know? And so currently what plant, is the best example of that for you? You know, what's your favorite plant in terms of flavor and effect? Um, my favorites uh, in the last couple of years have mostly come out of the the Urkel hybrids. Um, I, I I love phenotypes. Uh, a lot of the OG uh, OGs times Urkel. Um, I like uh, the uh, Chem Dogs times Urkel, um, and uh, there's a couple others uh, offhand I'm not thinking of right now, but uh, th- those are definitely some of my favorites over the last couple few years. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, given you've done so many purple Urkel hybrids and Bubba Kush hybrids, what do you think is your favorite crosses you've done out of all of those ones, you know, out of the Bubbers? What do you think Bubba paired with the best out of all the ones you made? And the same question for the Urkel. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, the Urkel definitely, um, Triangle Kush, uh, that one just spit out so many just, you know, u- unique and just tasty, uh, uh, phenotypes. Uh, that's a, that's an easy one. Um, with the Bubba, there was a handful, uh, 
of them. Um, ooh, what was that one? The um, the Bubba. Um, I like the Bubba Bubble Gum. That one had a lot of nice ones. Uh, it's been about <laughs> three years since I've run all the Bubbas out. So, uh, do, I, I, I've been, do you plan on restocking um, either the Bubba or the Purple Urkel feminized lines in the near future? Because I noticed when you did that, um, I think it was earlier this year, possibly even um, restock the lines. That was like the second batch you'd made of them, kind of. So is, is like a third in the works, so to speak. Oh, I, I haven't restocked any, and uh, I just have you know a supply of what I have. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and uh, I don't plan on remaking any uh, any of the hybrids. Um, a lot of the ones I even you know sell aren't you know aren't original. They're not even anything new. You know, other people have sold the same exact ones. Um, I'm mostly making these for myself. Um, and then, you know, I put them on the market, you know, for other people too. Um, but, uh, um, I, I don't plan to remake any of them. Um, at most, uh, I like to, uh, you know, go through large populations of the S1 and then I might, you know, make an S1 feminized hybrid that kind of refines, um, you know, the hybrids and maybe cross those to, you know, some of the better ones that I liked from each round. But as far as just remaking, yeah, uh, no. Mm -mm. Okay. Are there any special factors that go into determining if a strain would be specifically good for reversing? So is it just the case that you just pick the strain you want to reverse and that's the one you want to reverse and that's it? Or is it kind of like you look at a whole bunch of strains and you think, oh, well, there's a few characteristics in this plant which would make it good as a donor specifically? Mm-hmm. Um, well, to start, to start CSI, uh, I definitely, uh, kind of went with tried and trues. Um, I'd reversed the Bubba in 2006. I'd pretty much reversed the Urkel in 2002, you know, just with the, the accidental thing, you know, and saw what it could produce and really liked the results. So, um, I was basically building off of stuff I already knew and had already done, so I, I knew it was quality stuff. Um, you know, um, with the, um, with the future, future lines is definitely, uh, you know, some of the ones I reverse, I, I definitely might not even release because they might not produce, uh, you know, what I hope they would, you know? Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. And so if we just jump back to the labs for a moment, where do labs sit for you? Do you do you use them at all? No, you're not interested in the percentages. Do you feel the percentages are just overinflated at the moment? My my buddy works for one of the more legit labs, um, and he, uh, um, well, his his lab tends to test uh, a lot lower percentages than uh, some of these inflated labs that most people want to get their stuff tested at which is one of the reasons why uh, I don't generally, you know, use that as a proponent of my advertising campaign because um, something that tests, you know, for me at 20% will test at another lab at 25 or, you know, 26%. So, um, you know, I definitely take all that data because um, through, through my buddy, you know, we, we test all the, um, the cannabinoids and the terpenes. 
Um, but, uh, um, I don't exactly, you know, release the data because, you know, all that. Yeah. Secret source. <laughs> um, <laughs> so how do you feel about the whole kind of, uh, increase in popularity of like getting everything file or sequence? Are you a proponent of it? Are you against it? I've heard there's kind of two camps on the whole idea. Right. Um, I'd like to get some things philo sequenced, but you know, philo's approach to me uh, uh, a few times over the last couple of years, and um, I, I've I've been adamant. I mean, they'll test anything I got for three hundred dollars a clone. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not paying for you know you to tell me what I already know. You know, um, honestly, they don't even have a complete uh, system because. I'll, they don't have the base clones to begin with on a lot of things. I mean, unless they have a legitimate, you know, Chemdog 91 to start their galaxy with, unless they have a Triangle Kush to start their OG Kush galaxy, you know. Um, if they don't have the core tissue that's responsible for all these hybrids, then they don't have a galaxy, you know. I mean, I've got a bunch of tissue, you know. The the 91, the TK, the, you know, the Mendo Purple, the the original Urkel, you know, um, all of which you know can can be at the core of certain galaxies. But if they're, you know, galaxies don't include those, uh, they're not going to be accurate. You know. And so I've heard that um, there was certain people who feel like you shouldn't get it done because if you get the sequencing done, you lose the ability to like patent or, you know, like, claim ownership over the plant because when it's in, like, the public domain, it's, you know, it's no longer yours to claim. Have you heard anything like that? And and if it were true, would that be something that put you off it? Or do you think that, you know, like, the idea of trying to claim ownership of a plant is a bit silly? Uh, that, that's exactly kind of how I feel. I mean, I know there's definitely cats doing that, and I think it's ridiculous, um, you know, uh, but... You know how it is. Uh, you can't stop progress. <laughs> and so, how do you feel about, I guess, you know, the somewhat controversial subject or just the controversy this idea has been surrounded in, in that seeking permission to breed with a strain from someone else before you use it, you know? How do you feel about that? Does someone have to hit you up if they want to use one of your males from one of your strains in, like, a, a, a strain that they're going to then go and sell? Or where do you sit on that whole issue? It definitely uh, is a matter of respect, you know. I definitely appreciate it, you know. Um, I don't view it as necessary. I don't look at my seeds as possessions, especially if they're sold. Um, But even if they're given, you know, um, I'm very adamant on if I give somebody something and, you know, there's restrictions or anything on it, um, I'll tell them straight up. Uh, But, uh, you know, otherwise... uh, um, people are free to, you know, work work with gifts and especially bought seed to their heart's content. I just think, you know, um, it, it's definitely respectful to ask ask breeders and, you know, the sources, uh, you know, approval if, if you want to work with their stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so just to play devil's advocate, what would you do if you wanted to use a mat? Let's just. What would you do if Tom Hill hit you up and said, "Hey, hey, I, I just changed my mind on the PTK, and I actually don't want you to use it." Do you think at that point, you know, that respect should go so far as to like canning the project? Right. 
Um, that'd be a tough one. That'd be a tough one. Um, I would definitely respect Tom and, and, and his wishes for sure. Um, you know, cause you know, I, I just think that's how we should all be. Um, you know, uh, as for, you know, the PTK, my number one goal is just for preservation of the pure seed line. I mean, that's above and beyond. Um, anything else that stems of it is just a bonus, but you know, um, honestly, I, I think Tom, just as an example, um, is, is one of those people who kind of understands he doesn't hold, um, any of those lines as his possessions. I think he, he views them as he was just a keeper of those genetics for, for his time. I mean, and that's how I view things, you know, we're, we're all just keepers, you know, for, for, you know, as long as we are a keeper and then it needs to go on to the next person, you know? Yeah. But, you know, there's plenty of people who are, you know, opportunists and, you know, they, they get 10 seeds from somebody and it's off to the races to, you know, make that next hybrid or just reproduce it and sell it, you know? But yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I saw the funniest meme the other day. It's like, it was like a guy like trying to start a seed company. It's like, I need a cut of Girl Scout cookies and a 10 pack of seeds. <laughs> and it's true. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. Um, so who are some of the breeders who you really enjoy the work of or, you know, you really think highly of their work and even maybe go so far as to be like, their stuff is, you know, like I feel they follow similar ethics to I do and I would even be happy to possibly do a project with them because I we could meet eye to eye on that. Right. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm not shy about, you know, my favorite readers. Um, and I, I, I like to consider my favorite readers friends. Um, I, I'm, I'm definitely a huge fan of Bodhi. I mean, he, he's, he's, he's one of the best in my book. Um, mean Gene, uh, you know, he's rock solid, you know, um, if, if, if there's a spot where he could make an extra buck, he's going to tell you the truth and lose that buck over, over that dollar. Um, which, you know, I definitely can respect. Um, so, you know, guys like that who just have that, you know, integrity and just honesty and just, you know, they're, they're not just looking out for that dollar in themselves. Um, those are definitely the, you know, my favorite breeders and the ones I, you know, look up to. Yeah. Okay. And so if you were just a grower or free or maybe a better way to put it is if, if you lost your whole collection, as it were, seeds, clones, everything, and all you had to your name was like, you know, like 150 bucks. So basically you can buy like one packet of seeds. Which pack would you buy to restart the empire? Damn. <laughs> you drive a hard bargain. <laughs> <laughs> one pack. Uh uh, does this include I don't have any friends anymore? <laughs> no, no one's going to help you out. It's shit out of luck. Oh, <laughs> SOL. Huh. Oh, shoot. <laughs> uh, that's a really good question. Um, hmm. Oh, shoot. It could be from your stuff. No, no, no. I'll go with like some, I'll go with like some gelato times wedding cake. <laughs> no, get that money quick. I- yeah, yeah, and then, then I can afford more fat. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the best answer ever. So, <laughs> kind of relating, what would your advice be to a newly emerging breeder? More specifically, 
when should someone feel comfortable to not only release, but that they can feel comfortable charging for the work and, you know, like, no, and I'm not talking about like, you know, you just make some seeds and give them to your friend. Like, that's cool. But like, when should you feel confident that you have done the adequate work to be able to approach a seed bank and be like, look, you know, you know, maybe you could consider stocking my stuff and I feel like it's of high enough quality, you know, like, should they wait a certain time? Like, or, you know, what, what's your advice in general? Well, just from what I've seen, you know, at least in the present present time, um, you you know, I, I, I'm not going to stop anybody from breeding or, you know, uh, creating a, a seed company or, or going with it, you know, with even limited experience, um, just because it seems these days that it's more about branding, um, you know, than anything else. Um but uh, in the future, hopefully the bar gets raised to where, uh, you know, um, you actually need to really be a professional grower one and really have a, a strong understanding of the cannabis plant and, you know, how it breeds and, you know, what to even look for when you're doing selections, you know, mm. in the future. And so do you think breeders who come to the market with like, you know, one parent from Top Dog and one parent from Pirates of the Emerald Triangle and I've made a whole bunch of F1s, guys. Do you think that's like there, there's a place for that? Like, or do you think people should be like looking to, you know, maybe do more work than that? Like, and more importantly, I guess my other question is, do you, do you think that it's a bit of a cop-out for someone to maybe develop a male? And by that I mean like it's not just an F1, maybe they've even taken it to the F2 or like made an F1 then crossed it to another one of their strands. So, you know, like they've got some ownership over it, but then they've just crossed Mm -hmm. that to like 10 clone onlys and that's their whole offering, you know? Like how do you feel about that? Um, I mean, in in today's uh, world, I think it's, you know, par for the course. Um, You know, it, it, it is what it is. Uh, um, it's not ideal, but, um, there, there's cool stuff to be found in, you know, lots of the hybrids and some that you wouldn't even think, you know, would turn out, you know, um, really well. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I definitely have a different perspective than I used to. I used to have more of a purist idealist perspective and now it's like, eh, well, there's 101 ways to do it and. You know, it's up to the consumer to choose, you know, who they want to support. Yeah, okay. And so, last little question for this segment. If you could only hang on to one clone you've currently got, which one? Um, um, just one? Yeah, uh, if you want, you do three. <laughs> oh, <not> three? <laughs> uh, oh, if you're giving me three, uh, I'd probably hold on to... Um, Triangle Kush, Chemdog 91, and oh, three still limiting. Cause I, I like Urkel and Mendo Purple both. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I'd, probably, I'd probably have to stick with the Mendo Purple. Oh, it out yeah. edges the Urkel? Yeah. I mean, the Urkel breeds better, but there's, there's a lot of potential in that Mendo. So Yeah. Yeah. Awesome to hear. I think that's something maybe a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think off the bat. Mm-hmm. It, it's also personal preference. Not everybody's going to share it. Yeah, okay. 
And I mean, just out of curiosity, yeah. do you find one is more indica-leaning than the other, or they're both about the same? Oh, well, the, in, uh, the Urkel is definitely more indica. Um, the the Mendo Purple is more of a, a daytime type of thing. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Cool. It's just, it's, it's terpenes are just, you know, ooh-wee. So. <laughs> <laughs> Next bunch of questions were ones submitted by our fans. First one, what's your preferred method for selfing? I guess they mean, you know, like thiol sulfate, sil- colloidal silver. What's your route? I uh, always do silver thiol sulfate um, just because um, it's easiest. Um, you only have to spray them two or three times at most um, versus colloidal where you pretty much have to spray them every day or something like that. Mm-hmm. And what time period do you spray the plants? Because I know that's something which kind of varies a little bit. Like, do you spray them before the other females get in there, during? Usually, uh, a lot of times, you have to spray uh, your target female about two weeks before. So you have to flower her two weeks in advance of the rest of the plants, spray her at trigger, you know, and then... When the other plants get in, I generally spray um, spray her again. Um, and lately, I've been doing a, a thing where I, I tend to spray every ten days, so just to make sure you know um, she uh, she stays a he. Um, yeah. So uh, um, if if you if you uh, spray when you trigger, you're not going to be getting pollen until about five to six weeks into flower. Uh, generally, um, but if you spray two weeks in advance, you're getting that pollen between three and four weeks, which is, you know, ideal. Uh, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, have you ever do do you keep the donor plant completely segregated, or have you found that it can be in the same room and you give it a spray and it doesn't have impact on the other plants in the room? Yeah, I just make sure not to get any of the spray on the other girls. Yeah, yep. and it's just fine. In the same room. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So. Do feminized seeds have a place in breeding as mothers in order to create reg seeds from there? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, I don't want to give out all my trade secrets, but, I mean, uh, half the reason I, you know, reverse my lines is so I can isolate my favorite parts of each plant. So I'm looking to, you know, pull out my favorite, um, you know, examples of, a plant through the S1s and actually breed further into the future, you know, not only with, you know, S2s and everything, but, you know, with regular seed outcrossings um, with S1s and S2s. So, mm-hmm. okay. I definitely think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think we've already kind of touched on this, but just to nail the point home, what is your favorite chem? Mm-hmm. Um, well, for... Um, for raw power and smoking, I think the D is really good, but for, you know, uh, a purist and a, from a idealist perspective, the 91 is the only one I really, you know, want a long-term breed with. Cause I think it's the original mother source of all the camps. And just as a follow up so. from myself, do you believe that with the right partner, 
the Chem 91 could produce some seeds which rival its potency or do you think that it in itself is kind of like the one in a million in terms of its potency and it's quite unlikely you'll get stuff as potent from it in seed form? Um, well, if, if you think that the Chem D um, is, if you think along the lines of is, it's a most likely a feminized hybrid of the 91 itself, it's a lot stronger than the 91. Um, a lot of the Chem 91 hybrids I've personally bred, um, they test higher um, than the the original Chem 91. So I think, uh, you know, there there's a lot stronger potency held within its genes than generally is expressed through the cut itself. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And so we touched on mm-hmm. the Humboldt snow a bit earlier. Do you happen to know the origins of it per se? Well, um, the the guys I've been talking to seem to seem to um, seem to think that um, it originally came from the Eugene area um, up in Oregon, and um, they're saying that um, well, it, it's it's essentially the the same as Oregon snow, um, but they they they're they're saying that it's uh, most likely a uh, bag seed. Well, not essentially a bag seed, but uh, um, possibly like a feminized hybrid or a selfing of uh, the Fairfax four-way. Um, I'm looking to, you know, kind of look into that a bit further myself. Um, but it seems like it has a, a lot of potential, and I've, had, I've heard multiple, um, you know, stories from multiple sources uh, – that seemed to point in, you know, some some version of that direction. So yeah, awesome. I, I just want to also, you know, add to that the Fairfax Four Way. Of course, um, it's uh, basically a Pakistani, Afghani, um, Indian cross to skunk number one. So it's three land races and then skunk number one. So yeah, anyways. certainly. Have you grown it out? No, not yet. But I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I would say have you got you got you know someone who's got it because it's definitely around. Yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely around. I've, I I know people with it. Awesome, awesome. Because what's interesting about that one is um, Bob Hemphill had said that in his opinion he felt the four way had degraded over the years more so than the Chem ninety one, and um, mm-hmm. however the four the four way was popped in ninety five. I think he said, and so what he was trying mm-hmm. to get at was like it had degraded more so in less amount of time. Um, have you got any experience with that? Do you have any cuts which maybe aren't as old as the Chem 91, but in your opinion, they've degraded more significantly than it has in, you know, a shorter time frame? Um, you know, mo- most of the, the old cuts I have um, are fairly solid, um, except, uh, I don't know, that's a whole different discussion with the whole dud thing. I don't know if people are referring to kind of a, the dud thing. Or if they're just talking about, you know, lesser degradation. Um, I think they mean like the, just uh, as time goes by, the end product is just not as good as it once used to be, even though it's been grown quite well. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't know. Um, I mean, the, the snow I've held for almost 20 years still produces the same exact, uh, you know, yeah. um, quality that I remember 20 years ago. 
Yeah, so, I, I think maybe like the caveat that's placed on that conversation is that it's it's totally dependent on like how the plants are stored. So if you're like a cash cropper and you don't really put much time or effort into your mother room, it's just literally serving a purpose of like taking clones. You know what I mean? Like yeah. over years like those kind of neglected conditions is what leads to it. Whereas you may just not see that whatsoever because you don't put them in those conditions whatsoever. Right, right. Oh, mine, mine get treated a little rough. A little rough, okay. <laughs> Maybe there's hope for all for all of us out there who need to improve our mother stations. <laughs> right, right. So, next question. What information can you give us on the big bad bubba? Uh, which one's the big bad bubba? Um, I'll quickly check. I think it's, is it one of your crosses? I think it's like Fire OG, Chem D. Yeah, Fire OG, Chem D. It's uh, cross to Bubba. Um, It's just a, um, just a high quality, uh, um, you know, hybrid of the three that I give away for free. It it, it went under another name. (laughs) Okay. It went under another name, the Fire OG Chem D. Um, and, uh, I just give it away for free cause I had the seeds and it's quality, but I don't exactly want to give credit to the, the fellow who it came from. Okay. You know. <laughs> Alrighty. So next question, when did you get your barber cut and who was it from? And what do you think barber is exactly genetically? Um, okay. So I got my Bubba in 2005 from my buddy, uh, 707 Seed Bank. Um, he goes by the names, uh, Sierra Skunk and Shaw Bud, you know, on the various forums. Um, and he's been on the forums, I think, longer than I have. Um, so I got that from him in 2005, and he's had it since at least 2000, if not a little, little earlier than that. Um, uh, Archive got the same Bubba from him as well, and a handful of other cats. And his was sourced, you know, down around the L.A. area um, from a glassblower buddy, um, uh, you know, 17 years ago. And uh, um, I I believe it's, uh, you know, just straight from, uh, you know, Josh and Matt's, uh, you know, extended circle down there. And do you believe that whole story that the parents was a strain called Baba and they crossed it to the OG or do you think that's maybe not entirely accurate? I think that's probably it, it is as accurate as anything. I mean, at first I didn't believe the story and people I knew who had met that like uh, Matt, you know, are like, ah, oh, he's full of shit. But then, you know, um, you know, as time went by and I saw a few little, you know, um, uh, other things that led me to believe different. Um, I, I definitely believe, you know, it, it's a simple story and it doesn't have a lot of real BS. It's 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 almost too honest, you know. <laughs> it hermed, hermed in my closet under the stairs, you know. So, yeah. you know. Okay. And then, it's a real- sorry, a little follow-up one to that was, out of your Bubba hybrids, have you found any which on the whole stay quite true to the Bubba but get rid of the horrendously long veg time? Mm, hmm. Stay true to the Bubba. Huh. Eh. I wouldn't say so because Bubba, uh, the Bubba hybrids tend to segregate in two different directions. They're either um, 
about 50% of them are like Bubba, which you're not losing the veg time there. Um, and then the other 50% tend to, you know, grow um, a lot more vigorous like the mother plant um, that they came from. And they tend to have the mother's terpenes. So, you know, um, faster growing Bubba, not quite yet. Okay, maybe one day. Yeah. So, have you ever done a back cross using feminized pollen? Um, so, you know, like you make like a feminized cross and then you hit one of the offsprings of that with the same pollen you used to make the feminized cross. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I, I think I have. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, so, I I did Obama Kush, uh, basically uh, uh, Mendocino Purple, Cross to uh, um, Bubba Kush, and then I, uh, well, I didn't name it Obama Kush. <laughs> um, my buddy uh, up in Tigard, uh, he named it Obama Kush. <laughs> Throwing him under the bus right there. <laughs> but anyways, so I took that clone and then I pollinated it with Bubba Kush again. So that's kind of a back cross of sorts. And then you know, even Katsu Bubba could kind of be considered the same when I cross Katsu to the original Bubba. I think that's kind of a back cross or something of sorts. And, mm-hmm. and so what is the go with, um, I've heard of like Obama Kush being like a totally different genetic makeup to what you listed as. Is there someone else who tries to like take credit for it or something? I, I think it was like a dispensary and they said it was like super skunk and something else. And Right. Um, well, to clarify, there's definitely at least three or four different Obama Kushes because everybody named their favorite Kush after Obama, you know, when he first came up, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, there's a Obama Kush down in San Diego. Um, there's an, um, an Obama Kush over in Michigan. Um, there, and then my Obama Kush, which is extremely popular around uh, Portland and Eugene and Seattle, the Pacific Northwest, um, you know, that, that came from me and my buddy, you know, Tigard. So, um, Leafly or Leafly or whatever they, they call themselves. Um, they have it as a Afghani OG or something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, um, they're, they're based out of Oregon. So they should kind of know, you know, what, the the popular Obama from that area is so I don't even know yeah you know oh, they're, they're notorious for um having incorrect information about strains right exactly my, exactly my favorite one is Chem ninety one you go look it up it says Chem ninety one is a cross of Chem dog and Skunk number one it literally <laughs> says that oh man uh, <laughs> oh well and then I, me and me and my buddies have talked to them a little bit, and they're like, "Oh, we'll change them. You just have to hit us up." And it's like, "Yeah, sure, you will." Yeah, you know what's funny? I hit. I sent them an email one day, and I said, "Why don't you guys just pay someone to like just do this properly and like fix all the in things?" And they sent me an email back, being like, "Oh, we just rely on information submitted by our users." Um, and so I was like, "Oh, okay. So that's why we're in the state we're in right now." <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, well, next question. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. How are you dealing with making the transition to the legal market? Oof. We'll see. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. Uh, yeah, no, no, no telling right now. I, I, worst case scenario, 
I'll, I'll have a, a good high paying job for some corporate big money cannabis. Um, best case scenario, I'll have my own company and, uh, you know, find a little niche that I can fit into that'll support all the research and development that I kind of want to do in the future. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this one's, I'm not entirely sure what they're getting at. So just choose to answer it how you will. What's the best way to pollinate something without having it seed your whole room? And this is the part which doesn't quite make sense. Take it out of the room and spray water on it after. So I, I don't think they're talking about a male. Maybe they're saying if I want to pollinate a female and I do pollinate it, should I then like take it I, out of the room and like spray it down after it's ta- accepted the pollen? Or yeah, yeah, no, I understand what they're saying. I mean, if 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 you have mobile plants where you know you have your plant, your female plants, um, in a in a pot that you can actually bring out of your room and put in say like a dark tent or something, uh, you can you can definitely just pull that plant out pollinate it in that little private tent, you know, all by itself, leave it there for 24 hours in the dark is just fine. Um, the whole time. And then spray it down with water, just like they're saying, and pop it back up in your room and you won't have stray pollen cause water kills all the pollen and it will produce all the seed it needs to without pollinating your room. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Are you able to give us a little more information on your 10-14 light cycle? Um, that's usually only a light cycle um, I would use for uh, longer flowering sativas or in the heat of summer if you want to reduce temperatures or if you want to pull off a crop a little earlier um, than normal. I generally don't use them. Uh, unless it's a heat issue or, you know, I want to ripen stuff up early. Um, it definitely affects yields a bit just cause you're, you're losing, you know, a good portion of time. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, it, it, it's a time and a place type of thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, what's your favorite place to eat in the triangle? <laughs> huh? Man, I wish we had good food around here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's rough. Oh, shoot. Uh, honestly, uh, I like some of the little uh, Mexican joints as long as they have good margaritas. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, What's the difference between Granddaddy Purple and the Southern Humboldt Purple? Um, well, I'm not exactly sure what cut goes around the Southern Humboldt purple. I mean, uh, granddaddy purple, of course, is Urkel times, uh, Salmon Creek Big Bud. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, uh, um, Southern Humboldt purple generally refers to just purple Urkel, um, or a purple Urkel type. So it's, it's kind of just a vague, maybe generalization a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. and what's the difference between grape ape and purple urkel? Do you think purple urkel is the dad, or how do you think it offshoots from it? That's a good one. Um, I I ran out, you know, beds full of uh, urkel, um, granddaddy purple, uh, grape ape, you know, Pakistani purple, uh, black uh, Bridgeville black afghan, 
just a ton of these different purples from around the triangle years ago. And, uh, the grape ape, uh, supposedly has the same heritage, same exact heritage as Urkel. Um, but it seems to grow a little bit stronger and a little bit faster than, than the Urkel I've had since, you know, 2001, 2002. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, yeah. What is your soil recipe for indoors? I know you you touched on it, you know, what's the, you know, without listing weights and stuff, you know, what are the basic amendments you're chucking in? Right. Um, basically, um, I keep it simple. I just, you know, for my own needs, I use a black gold cocoa blend. And then uh, um, I mix in uh, like some Bokashi. Um, let's see, what else? Some insect frass. And then fish meals, fish bone meals, uh, alfalfas, kelps. Um, it depends on which run. Sometimes I just go, you know, with a little bit of uh, high nitrogen stuff. Other times I'm throwing in a bunch of extra rock dust, green sands, you know, long-term release stuff. And then I always uh, add a nice chunk of a uh, diatomaceous earth and, uh, you know, Omri uh, natural. Um, because anytime you're doing organics, and cocoa and all that, yeah, you got to keep those gnats at bay. <laughs> yeah, so. little motherfuckers. Yeah. All right. So, why make an S1 given there's such a stigma around feminized seeds, especially compared to other NorCal growers, i.e. look at Mean Gene and Lumpa? I think maybe what they're saying is like you sell more because if you did dregs, I don't know. Mm. Um. Yeah, no, I understand the question. I mean, honestly, in the future, um, a lot of people are, are probably going to lean towards um, well-done, consistent uh, feminized seeds over regular seeds because a lot of people aren't going to have the time or the space to even grow males or even need males. Um, you take the recreational market in Oregon and California where everybody is allowed to grow four to six plants. I don't think anybody, any of those people are going to want to grow males, you know? I mean, if you're only allowed such a limited number of plants, you know, uh, feminized seeds are essentially, you know, um, a, a perfect option. And a lot of the stem stigma behind feminized seeds is, is kind of false, you know? I mean, anytime somebody starts going on and on about how bad feminized seeds are, um, I, I ask them, well, hey, your regular seed breeders, are they using chem dogs, diesels, OG cushions, Girl Scout cookies? All of those things came from feminized seeds crossed to a male plant of some sort. You know, so it's just like, you know, you, you, people need, uh, eventually they'll get educated and realize, oh, wait, how come, you know, the, the most notorious breeders in the entire world, like Sam Skunkman and Chimera, or, you know, <laughs> huge proponents for feminized seeds. Yeah. Like, right is out there, you know. I don't know. Okay. I was about to say, sorry, uh, sorry to that viewer. I butchered the question, but we got through it. <laughs> um, <laughs> from our buddy Peabod Mike, who did you have in the fight last night? Wait, what? <laughs> um, I'm a simple man, real simple. Um, I only... <laughs> like a few things and most of it's just weed. So I don't even do sports. 
Oh, that's just me. Didn't you weren't you weren't hoping one was going to edge in front. And uh, are we are we talking boxing? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Um, what were some of the traits about the Pakistani Chitral that really drawed you to it? And what what were the ones you looked for in the male you selected? Ooh. Um, so with the Chitrals, um, one of the, the things I really liked about it, um, or them in general, was the fact that they're extremely strong in like uh, pining and limonene and terpenaline, and they don't have a lot of the common just Amsterdam terpenes, just myrcene and caryophylline. You know, there's so much stuff out there that is just loaded with myrcene and caryophylline that these, you know, just pungent, you know, over the top, sharp, astringent, you know, terpenes are, are kind of refreshing, you know. And I used more than one male, um, you know, in, in, in the breeding um, with the Pakistanis. Um, but uh, they, they definitely were uh, strong plants, um, stable plants, and uh, um, we're, we're, we're as close to, you know, what I was, um, you know, looking for out of the line as I could possibly get. Yeah, okay. Without particular. Mm-hmm. And will you use that male for other projects, or do you think you'll kind of retire him after this? Um, I might use uh, I might use him a little bit more. Um, yeah, I, I've still got a a couple few of those males um, set aside, and I definitely know what he breeds for. Um, so there's definitely a potential for future breeding with him. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. What do you think the genetic makeup of the black is? Uh, okay, wait. So, um, are we talking about the black I use? Probably. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, honestly, I have no solid idea. I mean, this plant basically grows like a bigger Bubba Kush plant. Um, it has a fairly unique uh, profile. And at first, I thought it was nothing special um, as far as, you know, I just figured it was like a Baba hybrid of sorts, but um, I guess it dates back quite a ways um, in the Heim Palm area of uh, Trinity County, and I didn't even know this until I kind of refreshed recently, but uh, um, it was even featured in, uh, I think, Jason King's either first or second Cannabible. Um, but as far as, you know, exact lineage, I mean, my cousin sourced it, whew, at least t- 10, 12 years ago out of Heimpalm. And uh, from there, I don't know, aside from it just being, you know, very similar to Baba Kush, but with, you know, different terpenes. Okay. And how did the Packy male in general influence the chem dog in the crosses you made? Like, how did the crosses come out, basically? Mm. Um, those are actually some of my, uh, favorite ones out of the, out of the F1 hybrids. Um, they basically, uh, made the chem dogs terpenes, uh, kind of exaggerated, made them more pungent, uh, more sharp. Um, so like with the chem D, um, I mean, I ended up with, you know, just ones that were extremely pungent. Um, and one of them in particular, uh, it just, uh, it smelled like just 
super sharp uh, motor oil, like grease almost. And then it tasted exactly like that, um, which you'd think was a bad thing, but it it was strong, so it was kind of a good thing. Oh, <laughs> awesome, awesome. And so yeah. an interesting question, sandalwood, coffee, and pine. These are terpenes which don't seem to really pop up as much anymore. Do you have any kind of theories as to why that might be? Do you think they just fell out of favor or maybe they were like not really dominant in terpenes or... Hmm. I mean, uh, me, me and a couple buddies, we love pine. So there's there's a lot of pine stuff we're we're working with and towards. Um, that's one of the reasons why you know I like the uh, the Pakistanis because uh, there's a lot of pine in them. Um, you know, pining A, pining B. You know, and uh, then Urkel. Urkel has a lot of pine in it, which you know that might even you know entertain the whole pine tar kush you know, parentage theory right there too. Um, also another reason why, you know, growing out the Christmas buds because, you know, looking for uh, pine terpenes. But uh, uh, over here we love pine. Uh, sandalwood, um, I'm not so sure. Um, what, what, what was the other terpene? Coffee. Or the, uh, oh, coffee, yeah. Well, there's, there's definitely plenty of coffee. Yeah. This guy just needs to get his hands on some Bubba Kush. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no shortage of coffee. Um, yeah. So this one I might cut out because it might, might if the answer is what I think it is, it might reveal too much. But basically, someone's messaged us and um, they've said, "Do you know if Sierra Skunk is the guy that Skunk VA mentions is like his friend who lived in Tahoe and?" Basically, in Skunk VA's story, he's like, yeah, I had this friend in Tahoe and I gave him the chem dog and you know, I'd go there and we'd snowboard and blah, blah, blah. Um, maybe that's not enough info for you to really answer that one, but this guy seems to think it's the same person. Okay, uh, so... He's wa- you wondering if nice you know that, anything about that. Yeah. <laughs> Sierra Skunk isn't, isn't the guy from Tahoe. <laughs> awesome. Do you like to use any specific types of growing in regards to like training? You know, are you like a lollipop dude? Are you like a mainline, a few colas? You just let them do their own thing. What's your kind of take on it all? Um, I like natural. Um, so as, as natural as I can, but I also like to clean up the unders and uh, clean up the sides. So I kind of close to lollipop, but somewhere between lollipop and uh, a natural plant structure, you know, is how I like to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, awesome. And, and what method do you find is the best for trying to yield the most, generally speaking? Um, oof. I mean, being that I'm not really going for yields ever, uh, you know, um, I, I, I'm, I'm one of the people who, who uh, firmly... Uh, goes with the there's 101 right ways to do th- something so i think you can get high yields with a dozen different methods you know yep so whatever works best for you is what i always tell them <laughs> all righty so we'll just jump into our last few questions just kind of little short answer ones mm-hmm. what is your least favorite strain ooh least favorite huh <laughs> huh damn those are usually the ones that you just toss, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I don't know. 
Huh. I've tossed quite a few. <laughs> hmm. I don't know if I have a uh, any least favorites. Um, I uh, I ran out a land race. Uh, what was it? A uh, a Pakistani yarkun recently, mm-hmm. and it was absolutely terrible. You know, <laughs> I was I was gonna I was gonna do a reproduction of it, and I was like, "What am I reproducing here? <laughs> this sucks." So, uh, recent memory, that's <laughs> pretty bad. What do you think is the most overhyped strain? So, not necessarily like, you know, like Blue Dream, it's real hyped, but like what strain do you think gets a good rap on the whole, but it's actually pretty trash? Right, right. Um, oh, There's tons of them these days, huh? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, me personally, you, you kind of nailed it with the damn Blue Dream. I mean, uh, it, it's been so popular um, up here. Uh, I mean, e- even some of my kid brothers have run like 99 plant gardens of nothing but Blue Dream in you know, the past five to ten years, and I've never even grown the plant. I'm just like, no, thank you. So oh, I'm going to give it to Blue Dream. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so in terms of both like, you know, breeding side of things, but as well as also like the general political domain, what do you think is the worst thing to have happened to the cannabis scene since you've became involved in it? Mm. Well, probably recreation, recreational legalization. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know any, any, uh, growers, at least in California, um, who really voted for it. Um, and I mean, just watching what's happened in Colorado and Washington and even Oregon, you know, coming on now, I mean, uh, it's, it's pretty much killing, uh, it's killing, uh, the way things used to be in a, anyways. So what, a lot of people, what are kind of like the pitfalls that are that were oversighted, you know, like what's happening now that's like the problem. Is it the case that people are losing like their right to grow or like the numbers or what's up with the legalization? It's just mass production, uh, big money, commercial grows. Um, you know, one, one, you know, huge grow can wipe out, you know, a hundred or a thousand, you know, small farmers, you know? So I, I think it's just been a way of life, you know, in Northern California and, uh, you know, Oregon and, uh, just around where I grew up. Um, and it's not going to be that way for much longer at all. So, yeah. So what do you think is the biggest mistake you see like kind of newly emerging breeders make? Mm. Biggest mistake, uh, probably crossing a <laughs> one male times one female. Yeah. Um, Small selections, small selections, and um, the one-to-one model. The one-to-one model is never good, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then final one. Oh, no, sorry, not final one, second last one. What is kind of your growing tip for everyone listening? You know, what's a little secret you think maybe not a lot of people do when growing and it helps out? It could even be like, you know, the use of a particular supplement. I remember one time someone said, make sure you use silica, you know, that shit's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, let me think, uh, the simplest thing, thing I, oh, I'm, yeah, right there. Keep it simple. Uh, 
Um, I, I see it all the time. People try to complicate their grows. You know, they they use a dozen different, you know, bottled nutrients. They they try to, they, they kill their plants with kindness, you know, and they don't even manage to, you know, um, reap the rewards of everything they're given. So I, I say don't forget about keeping it simple because you can produce excellent quality, excellent yields, and save yourself a bunch of headache and money by just keeping it simple. Yeah, without a doubt. All right, on to the mm-hmm. real last question now. <laughs> um, I like this one because it gives good insight into all the breeders. If you could go to one place in time and history, um, geographically, all that, where would you go to collect land race seeds? Ooh, it would probably have to be, you know, can, can I have a um, uh, a, a resource? Um, <laughs> yeah. There, <laughs> there, there were certain years that were really good for hash production, you know, back in the 60s and 70s. I just needed to pick the right year. <laughs> yeah. Um, I definitely go to, you know, somewhere along the Hindu Kush mountains, you know, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Um, I'm definitely more of a an indica type myself, so, you know, somewhere somewhere in the 60s and 70s, uh, right, right about around in there, that would be about right for me. Sounds fantastic. Any comments, shout-outs, anything like that you wanted to make? Um, oh, uh, I usually have brain farts during these things, so <laughs> I think I'm good. Yeah, no worries. Hopefully we covered it all. I think we have, honestly. Thanks so much again for coming and you know dropping all these knowledge bombs on us and helping us fill in all the blanks. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. So there we have it, guys. A huge thank you again to Inspector for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Inspector's definitely been one of the most requested. A huge thank you as always to 420 Australia and OGS, as well as all our Patreon fans. You guys are really the lifeblood of the show and everyone needs to thank you for the increase in content over the last few weeks and for what's to come. Check out the Patreon page if you haven't already and otherwise, uh, see you.